Hello everyone, and welcome to my English reading of Digimon Seekers Chapter 3, Unit 11, Digital Missing in Action. As always, this is just a reading of the chapter straight from Digimon.net and its official English translation. There will be, as always, very limited discussion points. I might point out small translation errors or typos, such as calling characters by the wrong name, but that's it in terms of any discussion. If you want a review of the chapter, I'll be doing so on the YouTube channel like I have with the previous chapters. I also recommend clicking on the official links for each segment on Digimon.net just to boost views on the official release to show Bandai that there's demand for this uh, series. Each segment also has pretty official artwork, which is nice to check out, so definitely do that. And of course, again, I'm not a professional voice actor or audiobook reader, so please understand that I'm just doing my best here and it's just for fun. Don't expect any amazing voices, just expect a similar quality to my previous readings. And it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, if you haven't already done so, please listen or read each chapter, as in 1, 2, and chapter 2's intermission, as it is required listening slash reading for chapter 3, and this is the chapter 3 reading. Lastly, and this is a new bit, I'll be releasing each segment over on Patreon each week as I record them, and this is for backers pledging $10 more a month, so if you want each segment early and as it releases, please check out the channel on Patreon. Otherwise, you can wait until the full chapter releases for the full reading. So with all that out of the way, let's jump into Chapter 3 of Digimon Seekers. Chapter 3, Part 1. The first Codecrackers who dove into the digital world were adventurers of a sort, carrying out expeditions that put their lives on the line. Many of them felt like the self-proclaimed explorers of the 15th century, striking out into unknown territory on their ships to map continents yet unknown to them and chart new shipping routes in the process. Similarly, the Codecrackers were desperate to learn more about the Firewall and eventually reveal the secrets of the depths they suspected lay within. It was a heady time, and Tartarus, a skilled Codecracker, couldn't resist the call. It didn't take him long to assemble a select crew of explorers that would eventually form the core of the much-maligned Sons of Chaos. Beyond the digital world's impenetrable firewall lie the depths, accessible only through the gateways that regulate the traffic into and out of the depths. One such gateway sits at the centre of the wall slum, and Tartarus led his small band of future SOC members right to it. All that remained was to use the mind-linked partner Digimon to co-crack the gateway itself. The operation had been a success to this point, but luck doesn't last forever. The system administrator discovered them, bringing the group face-to-face with a horde of gatekeeper Digimon. Eradication attack! Megatron reared back and launched a hail of organic missiles into the air, all direct hits, 
a massive hole opened in the swarm, only to be filled moments later by fresh reinforcements. There were too many of them. Their movements made it look as though sprites were flickering on a massive screen as a GPU struggled to keep up with the number of draw cells being made. It was impressive optical illusions, albeit one that signalled immediate danger. I can't hold them very long, Megadramon, piloted by Marvin the Songsmith, informed Tardis in chat. They had already been mind-linked for quite some time, and there was no way Marvin could hold off the massive army of enemies before him. The Gatekeeper Digimon, as they're colloquially known, descend like a swarm of locusts upon any who dare attempt to get through the firewall. What they lack in raw stats or power, they make up for by attacking in hordes of hundreds or thousands at a time. The SOC unit, on the other hand, consisted of a handful of ultimate level Digimon. Everyone in the elite crew was an S-tier codecracker, but they couldn't hope to defeat an army of thousands, assuming the enemy forces were even finite in the first place. Time to get to work, Dorimon! We're moving to Phase 3, Tartarus said from Dorimon's Digicore, as he sent some commands through his software tool. Got it! The rookie Digimon replied, initiating its digivolution first to champion, then to ultimate. Doru Greymon, ultimate, beast dragon, Dada. Its silvery wings stirred in the air, revealing a creature that was now half beast and half dragon. It quadrupled body recalls that of a massive herbivorous dinosaur, with an elongated neck and tail. That body, however, is covered in fur rather than scales. Metal Meteor! A shadow began to form over Doru Greymon's head. A massive metal spire sphere formed in the air, stealing the attention of the swarm of gatekeepers as well as the other SOC members themselves. Shoot, Tartarus isn't playing around, Marvin yelped, signalling for the others to retreat. They gradually began to fall back continually firing anti-air attacks to keep the gatekeepers at bay while Tartarus readied his counter. The interface on Doru Greymon's head began to glow. Characters made of pure light began to appear on the surface of the massive metal sphere. Code. Commencing crack. Contact with the gateway in 10, 9, 8. Doru Greymon intoned as a metal meteor began its des descent. The army of gatekeepers, rather than flee, raced directly underneath the metal meteor. They piled in next to one another, all pressing against the projectile, trying with their combined might to lift it back up and away from the gateway. They're trying to stop it, Tartarus. Let them try. Keep going. The metal meteor continued its swift descent and made contact with the gateway, crushing the gatekeepers in its path. The high-pitched screaming of metal grating against metal ran out as the metal meteor smashed into its target, slowing as the metal barrier continued to scream and strain, but hold. As massive as the metal meteor appeared to the Digimon and their partner humans, slamming it into the caldera-like gateway was akin to tossing a pebble into a lake. 
The ripples from that pebble, however, could have had far-reaching effects. Begin decoding. This can still work, Tartarus said. Amida began to fill on Tartarus's virtual monitor. 20%, 25%. Spidery lines of light began to stretch across the gateway, radiating out like cracks in glass. The gateway was breaking. A massive, metallic thud reverberated through the air, followed by low groans as the gateway continued to strain. The remaining gatekeepers swarmed Doru Greymon in a last-ditch effort to stop the Digimon attacking the gateway. You think you can stop us? Maximum firepower, everybody! We just need to buy him another minute! Marvin shouted. The entirety of the SOC group launched everything they had at the gatekeepers. A previously loud and conspicuous humming that had simply faded into the background ceased, and the sudden silence was jarring. Dora Greymon's metal meteor had completely ground to a halt. The code that lit up at the surface began to fade, and the decoding progress bar stopped just beyond 30%. What's happening, Dora Greymon? Tartarus barked. Process terminated. This is as far as we'll get with the power of a single prototype Digimon, Dora Greymon said coolly. Just as we hypothesized, Tartarus said with a heavy sigh. The gate requires a triptide key. We'll need all three Digimon attributes in order to crack it. We are in need of two more prototype Digimon, a virus type and a vaccine type. All of them must be ultimate level, and all must attempt to crack the gate simultaneously. Dora Greymon continued. You're a data type. Yearlings Yerudamon is a vaccine type. We just need one more, Tartarus said to himself looking out at the gateway through Dora Greymon's eyes. It remained firmly shut, like someone had placed a lid on a volcano. This gateway, Dora Greymon interjected, has been here a long time. As I'm sure you know, it predates the existence of the war slum. Of course it did. It was only through the advent of humanity connecting to the internet and developing their own network that the real and digital worlds discovered one another which resulted in the digital world constructing the gateway in response. That, in turn, led to large data drifts near the gateway and scores of Digimon who could not return to the digital world. These exiles banded together, and they built the war slum. It might be a, well, a a prehistoric artifact to them. Is that what you're saying? Precisely. To them, it's a door that requires three ancient organic keys. Three magical good luck charms, if you like, Dora Greymon replied. But this gate hides what we seek, doesn't it, Dora Greymon? Yes, Dora Greymon said, flapping its wings gently in agreement. Beyond the gateway lies the depths, as you call them. And the source code, Tartarus continued, getting to the heart of the matter. The... What did you call it in the real world? The, the Holy Grail? Doraemon asked. The thing with, with which all manner of miracles are possible, and the thing which no one must ever possess. Then perhaps you should abandon your search? Indeed. The source code beyond the gateway has the power to change the world. We cannot possibly know how it will change the world, 
but I believe it would be better than the world as presently constructed, Dora Greymon said solemnly. And I will be the one to change it. You're a regular revolutionary, aren't you? Tartarus mused. For example, which revolutionary from your history would you compare me to? Now, that's, that's not for me to say. Revolutionaries are judged in the eyes of history long after their deaths, Tartarus said, feigning ignorance. I do not wish to die. Nor do I, but there are things worth risking one's life for. Tartarus switched to the private line to Dora Greymon so they could continue their conversation undisturbed. We Digimon are born from chaos, and Digivolution is the fate that has been thrust upon us. And humans are right there beside you. Over the last 2,000 years, we've simply become adept at gaming the system, so to speak. Wait, someone's coming. Dory Greymon, once focused entirely on code cracking the gateway, now felt the eyes of another. The metal meteor at last came to a complete halt, and now began to show cracks of its own. The screeching sound of metal being rent in fits and starts echoed throughout the caldera. The code along its surface began to warp and break apart. Something was destroying the metal meteor from the other side of the gate. From the depths. They're here! Dora Greymon shouted. Loathers all Wallslum Digimon were to actually give name to the creature that was likely fighting back. One of the thirteen royal knights, the guardians of Yggdrasil. Marvin, tell everyone to fall back! Tartarus yelled into the voice chat. You heard him! Fall back unless you want to be DMIA! Marvin shouted. One by one, the SSC Digimon began to flee without hesitation. Dora Greymon and Tartarus took off after them. The gateway receded into the distance. Each and every one of them knew they didn't stand a chance against one of the Royal Knights. Not even as a team. The Royal Knights, Tartarus said softly to himself, looking back at the gateway as Dora Greymon carried them further into the air. He then watched through Dora Greymon's eyes as a flash of light split the metal meteor in two, and it disintegrated. What neither the Codecracker Tartarus nor his partner Digimon Dorumon knew at the time was what that it would be many, many more years before they would attempt to crack the gateway again. Chapter 3, Part 2 We do what we do to uphold the law and fulfil our professional duties. We fear nothing. We harbour no ill will. Our conscience is our only guide. Yuling Shu, head of the Metropolitan Police Department's Unit 11, a special section of the Community Safety Bureau's Cybercrime Division, colloquially referred to as the Digipolice, patrolled the lawless network from the skies, mind-linked to her partner Digimon. Jugurama! Her dragon-like ultimate-level Digimon found itself some code-cracker Digimon on this particular patrol and they were now rounding up miscreants with its powerful omnidirectional attacks. The Digimon, for its part, recalled the Dragon of Southeast Asia. Its black reptilian skin gave contrast to its regal golden whiskers and plumage, which, at a glance, took on a handcrafted quality. It wore appropriately scale-like armour, 
and clutched two massive jewels in each set of ferocious talons. Rudamon, Yuling's partner Digimon, looked fully mature in its ultimate form. Hisarumon, Ultimate, Beast Dragon, Vaccine. Code crackers contained, Yuling announced in the Digipolice chat. Well done, squad leader, you're as sharp as ever, came a near-instant reply. Spare me the flattery and alert processing, Satsuki. On it! Deputy Leader Satsuki Tamahime replied in classic, carefree fashion, hitting the code crackers with one more attack from her Numemon as she contacted the appropriate officers. It was a day like any other on one of the NET's government servers, with all manner of cyber warfare ripe for the thwarting. In Japan, that duty fell to the police, largely thanks to Yuling's presence at the department. The Public Safety Bureau and Ministry of Defence had no real anti-Digimon units to speak of, meaning Yuling's unit was Japan's de facto line of defence against Digimon crime. Why do we cats, Hisarumon? Yuling asked, hololizing herself as Hisarumon alighted near one of the restrained Digimon. Familiar foes all. Cyber-type Digimon engineered for data collection, came the reply. A top-line analysis of the seized Digimon gleaned from Hisarumon's scans. So it seems. They were after state secrets, judging by their backup functions and other tools. I would venture that they were sent by a familiar overseas adversary, Hisarumon continued, extrapolating from their initial analysis. Yuling trusted Hisarumon's analysis more than that of any so-called expert in the field. A cat-and-mouse game. It appears that there are still a few in operation. What say you? Shall we send one or two back, perhaps with a little souvenir in hand? If your hunch as to who's behind the attack is correct, this is above our pay grade. The Japanese police meddling in international issues best left to diplomats and international courts was a recipe for disaster. Even if they were wrong, current law forbade preemptive strikes on other nations' servers. Yes, indeed. But why not? It's not likely to have any bearing on what happens to them once they return to their home countries. Yuling was in a rather playful mood. Why shouldn't she engage in a bit of petty revenge? As you wish, Hisarumon said cheerfully, and set to work on the restrained Digimon. Yuling drifted back into her own memories at the sight of the interface on Hisarumon's forehead. She once knew someone who had a Digimon with the same tech attached to their forehead. Where are you now, Kosuke? What are you up to with that Digimon of yours? Our story begins quite some time before Eiji Nagasumi was born. Yuling Shu attended a university at the forefront of net research at the time, which meant investigating some mysterious AI data that had just been discovered. There were whispers that another world, different from our own, existed on the network, in which unknown AI programs were leading their own lives. Common wisdom, of course, dictated that humanity had discovered and developed the net. After gathering more data, however, another hypothesis emerged. What if the network had always existed? 
What if humanity had discovered not the net itself, but merely a means of accessing it? What if the intelligent life humanity had long scanned the heavens for already existed in the digital world, right here on Earth? Tomonori Rusenji quickly emerged as one of the preeminent figures in the race to explore and study this new frontier, and he had tapped three of his most vibrant young scholars to assist him in his laboratory. The completion of the Denrin district signalled the dawn of a new era for Tokyo, and before long, steel skeletons awaiting their new concrete skins loomed over the nearby Wangan district as well. Dump trucks and heavy machinery brought other materials into the district as their schematic renewal of the capital got underway. Yuling walked through her university's campus, trying to picture a world in which all the buildings around her had vanished. The entire campus was to be merged with the up-and-coming Denrin district in just a few years' time. As difficult as it was for her to envision it then, she couldn't help but feel a bit weird about the whole endeavour. It would be such a dramatic transformation. The air conditioning unit inside Rusenji Laboratories rattled away. Circulating cool air, an eternal struggle to counteract the heat radiating off the many servers humming along on steel racks that partitioned the room. Good morning, Professor Rusenji, Yuling said, despite the fact that it was already well into the evening. It was a cute custom in the lab, and she wasn't about to break it. Ah, morning, Yuling, the assistant professor responded without lifting his eyes from the monitor before him. Got some mail for you. Yuling said, scattering a pile of envelopes on his desk. Mm-hmm, Rusenji grunted, as was his style. Yuling wondered how long he'd been locked in a staring contest with his monitor. I've delivered the mail, okay? Acknowledge me with your words and eyes so we don't end up playing Did Yuling Deliver the Mail? I hate that game. Ah, there! There's the bug! Who wrote this awful code? You? Probably? Nah, nah couldn't have been, could it? All he had to do was look at the comet history to find his answer, and yet... Has my proposal to establish a proper server room still not been approved? It's freezing in here. Yuling griped as she took up the jacket hanging on the back of her chair and put it on. They're going to move the entire campus over the next several years. That's been reason enough to refuse funding for projects of all sh shapes and sizes. And yet, they're on our case in the best of times for using too much electricity. I'm trying to help, Yuling scoffed. I keep telling them how important the next three years will be, Rusenji grumbled. He did a lot of that in these days. I hear investment in our field is quietly exploding around the world, like exponentially. Our advantage could vanish overnight. What are the politicians going to do if the world leapfrogs us? Should we get the jump on it and go overseas now? I bet you'd be in high demand. Just just wait a minute, Yuling. Are you proposing we turn around and sell our nation's crown jewel for a song? Yelped a voice through one of the steel racks. There, on three chairs lined up in between the racks himself, lay a man. Ah, oh, didn't see you there, Kosuke. Yuling said coolly to the upperclassman. Slept in the office again, he said matter-of-factly. 
Judging by the increasingly thick scruff in his face and the fact that he was in the same clothes that he, she saw him in the day before last, Euling suspected again was code for hadn't been home in several days. Unkempt or not, Kosuke Kisakata was part of the Rusenji Laboratory's team. At least wash your face and brush your teeth. Did you even bring a change of clothes? Oh, about that. Kosuke began when the door to the lab burst open, revealing a petite woman. Feeding time, you feral beasts. In a flurry of activity, she shoved aside the items on the meeting table to make room for a stack of takeaway beef bowls. Ah, oh, yeah, I'm starving. Here's your change of clothes, Kosuke, she said, tossing him a paper bag. Sire, did you go all the way to Kosuke's house to get him a change of clothes? Yep. Oh, and don't worry, I brought you some food too, pork bowl, right? Sire beamed, handling Yuling a takeaway bowl. Thanks, uh, here's some cash. Put that away, it, it's Dad's, I mean, the professor's treat. It came with a pork and miso soup too. Wow, really? Wow, you don't see that every day, Yuling said with no small amount of surprise as she glanced over at Professor Rusenji. Chapter 3, Part 3 Rusenji Laboratories quickly vaulted to the forefront of digital world research not long after its discovery. Its initial team consisted of three of Assistant Professor Rusenji students. Kosuke Kisakata, a programming prodigy, Yulin's close friend Saya Rusenji, the Assistant Professor's daughter, and Shu Yulin herself. You have got to stop quit, quit cuddling Kosuke Saya, bringing him a change of clothes? Who are you, his mother? Yulin said, between mouthfuls of pork bowl before chugging a bottle of tea like her life depended on it. I'm his wife, not his mother, Saya corrected, and it's fine, it was on my way. I'm just saying that any hour of your precious life you spend on this bozo is an hour wasted. Mm-hmm. Here's your soup, Kosuke, Saya said, handing Kosuke a container. Thanks, Kosuke replied. And you have to eat your salad too, Saya chided, fussing over her husband. They were very much newlyweds, and Tomonori Rusenji smiled softly at the domestic scene before him. Yulin, however, suddenly felt like she was a freeloader sitting at Professor Rusenji's dinner table. Tomonori let out a laugh. What's so funny, Professor? Yulin asked, reading into his laugh five million different ways, none of them good. Yulin has no patience for men with a couple missing life skills like you and me, Professor. Is that so, Kosuke? What would you say are our missing... This isn't Professor began. How we all eat quietly, hmm? Just enjoy the feed I brought you for your wild animals, Sire said to the chorus of... Yes, sire, from smiling faces all around the table. The topic of conversation was, of course, their research. Specifically, the digital world, the newly discovered place full of mysterious AI programs, sitting right there on the network. Rusenji Laboratories had observed these lifeform-like programs, that they'd been called, and they wanted a better term before anyone else. They were little digital monsters. Unfortunately, their short lifespans made research difficult, and nothing was going according to plan. 
they needed to find a way to raise and breed these creatures for further study. Suppose the professor's hypothesis is correct, that they're living AI life forms in there, Say offered, with the professor winning out over Dad this time. It often felt as though her brain flipped a coin every time she needed to refer to him. Tomonori himself rarely thought about it very much. He loved his family, but he truly lived for his research, a scholar's scholar, so to speak. If they're AI life forms, then we might be able to keep them as one keeps a pet, like this one, for example, Tomonori said, gesturing to his monitor. It was filled with numbers that, upon further inspection, changed with a rhyme and reason, with a sort of natural order. It's so cute, Kosuke said. Isn't it just Kosuke? I do believe this one. Yes, I think it might be an amphibian in nature. Ah, yes, it might have a duality to it, Kosuke agreed. You're the only ones who think you know that. Yulin snarked as the two men poured over the numbers. Ah, yes, but Yulin, just imagine seeing it all for yourself. Not just a bunch of numbers, but the real thing, with your own eyes. Sai said dreamily. They all suspected doing so would upend much of the world's conventional wisdom. It would mean extraterrestrial life wasn't on Mars, Jupiter, the moons of Saturn, nor any other rocky planet or thriving off in the Andromeda galaxy. It had been right here on the network the whole time. Exactly, sire, Tominori said, turning to look at his daughter. We have to be able to observe the digital world directly if our research is to scale in any meaningful way. In other words, we need investment from public and private entities, and we'll need to show results that they can understand too. As beautiful as this data looks to us, it doesn't mean a thing to them, Kuska added. Yeah, of course, Yulin agreed. And on that note, Tominori said, gripping the table with both hands, Yulin recognised the gesture as his now-we're-discussing-serious-matters pose. Yes? I'm starting a business. A business? You're turning this into a company or something? Yulin understood what the words meant, but not necessarily in this context. I want to see the digital world with my own eyes, hear it with my own ears, touch it with my own hands. Uh, I think you're skipping ahead a little too far, Kosuke interrupted. You know the university has some venture capital set aside for incubating businesses. We'll use that to start a company. So we use the university's venture capital to start what? Resenji Laboratories Incorporated? A public traded company? Exactly. The current cabinet is keen to support startups right now. And they might just get the budget for it, Kosuke said. And you knew this... About this too, sire? Am I the last one to hear about this? I only heard about it before you did, sire said. Don't take it personally. We had to take things on one step at a time, and the professor didn't want the excitement to be short-lived, Kosuke said, trying to contain the fallout. What do you mean? Why would it have been short-lived? Well, we'd be able to move out of this dingy frozen lab into an office with the proper server room. Okay, I'm in. Yulin said, without thinking. Great, we need you, the trilingual presentation whiz, to make our pitch to secure the funding, Kosei said, beaming. We're counting on you, Sai said, cloyingly. Kosuke and assistant Professor Rusenji had classic researcher brains. Sai was a genius in her own right, with a list of accomplishments longer than Yulin's, 
but they were probably worried about her looking too young and childlike. Yuling couldn't argue with that. The cops once escorted her home, mistaking her for a middle school student, out well past her bedtime. Are you sure? Yulin asked the assistant professor. Sure about what? I mean, I was born Japanese, but my father's a naturalized citizen and my mother's from... Yuling trailed off, thinking about the many hurdles that stood in their way. Security and National Defense Development, a company seeking government venture funds, would no doubt trigger a background check against corporate espionage, which would complicate matters both for this new venture and for Yuling herself. It may not be the most important factor, but she worried her nationality would become an issue. And how is that a problem? Tominori said, looking Yulin straight in the eye. Yulin, Koska said gently. He's saying you're the only one who can do this. <sighs> okay. Resenchi Laboratories was on the move. Each bit of data on the main monitors described a creature living in the digital world, scurrying around, going about their life. Things are about to get very busy around here, Kosuke said. You'll be seeing a lot less of me, though. I'll be on the front lines getting things set up at the new office. So you've already found an office. Nice. What about your university credits? You don't have enough, do you? Saya asked with a note of genuine worry. I can stay enrolled here for a few more years, but I don't necessarily need to graduate at this point, Kosuke replied. I'll hire him, even if he doesn't, Tominori said with a smile. Yuling let out a heavy sigh. Not exactly a great thing for an educator to say, Professor, she chided. Eh, perhaps not. Chapter 3, Part 4 The crew painted the name, however temporary, of the company across the door of the warehouse that made their factory, Rusenji Electronics. The factory itself was located in the Denrin district and due to be levelled for redevelopment but they had negotiated a contract to make use of the place in the meantime. And that does it, Saya said, affixing the company's nameplate to the mailbox. Tokyo University of Electrical and Computer Engineering, Rusenji Laboratories. The university's name, at least, had been finalised. Tokyo University of Electrical and Computer Engineering. So, Tokyo Electrical, Saya said, trying to coin a nickname right away. Sounds like a power company. Tokyo Computer U? Yulin laughed as she offered her take on the name. Denrin District's construction began with the relocation of universities, research facilities, and other public institutions. Once those were established, private businesses would be drawn in, followed by retail facilities and high-rise apartment buildings. New subway systems, highways, and other infrastructures would be built as the district took shape in order to best serve its needs. Within ten years' time, it would be complete, and Tokyo would have had a shiny new district. Denrin would house several special wards built to attract people and capital from all over the world. It was a surefire way to create a more diverse, multicultural capital. You seem pretty happy these days, Professor. How could I be anything but? I'm the proud owner of my very own business, and the mountain of debt I took on to do so, but never mind that right now. It was debt that Saya wouldn't necessarily escape, either. 
Tom and Nori launched Rusenji Electronics with a mix of the university's venture capital, various government funds, and his own money. He'd agreed to shoulder a substantial amount of the financial burden, even if it had all been approved by committee. That kind of research takes a lot of cash, Yulin said with a sigh. The servers and other machinery had to run 24 hours a day, and guzzled electricity like water. Well, Dad, the professor, I mean, will dictate the direction of our research. I know he won't give us that kind of control. I mean, he also happened to be the only one who truly understands all this digital world stuff anyway, Yulin noted. There was an entire world out there on the network, just waiting to be studied. Daydreams and taxes weren't going to be enough to fund the research required. Attracting the necessary funding required a pitch bringing together threads from across disciplines, from autonomous AI to bleeding-edge VR development. Neither were easily transformed into sustainable businesses, but Tomonori needed them to advance for the sake of his own research. Everyone at Rusenji Laboratories knew just one thing for certain. The little AI creatures they'd discovered on the network were about to unlock something significant for humanity. The Rusenji Electronics offices were housed in one room of a former factory, with, at last, a separate server room. The room itself was far more spacious than their previous laboratory, even if the venture deal hadn't given them quite enough money to build a welcoming lounge, hire reception staff, give employees free meals, or any other fancy benefits. Behold! An experimental external storage device designed to record the actions of all AI lifeforms, the Digital Monster Dock System, Assistant Professor Usenji bellowed as he unveiled his new gadget prototype. Digital monsters, eh? Yulin said, with a slightly puzzled look. The Digimon Dock for short. It's a mouthful I know, Saya offered. It looks like a toy, came Yulin's unvarnished assessment. It was smaller than a deck of playing cards and sported a monochrome LCD display with some basic controls just below the screen. It's not exactly something we're gonna turn into a product. The professor needs his hobbies, Kose said, coolly. Indeed, Tomonori was something of a gadget fiend, and he had the stash of antique mobile phones, retro game consoles, and other electronic junk to prove it. He and Kosuke were the brain trust of the group, and mostly stuck to the roles they've carved out for themselves. Kosuke was a natural when it came to programming, while Tomonori was a fine electrical engineer. That's exactly it! This could very well be the next innovation in the toy business! It could be a device that helps people feed and raise their beloved digital pets, Tomonori said to his captive audience. We've never had a way to keep and raise these digital monsters for very long. They're fragile creatures that perish quite easily after all. Which got me thinking, is something about our network environment putting undue stress on them? What if I made something as close as possible to their natural digital habitat? That became the design ethos for this device, keeping these AI critters alive. 
Tominori's enthusiasm for research always turned into something of a one-man show, and these shows managed to run longer than any university lecture Yulin and the company had ever endured. At least they were never boring. Tominori's enthusiasm and flair for finding the hope along the way always shone through. He was a researcher first, but he had the heart of a dreamer. He carefully laid out a world in which kids raised these digital monsters as pets, one where Digimon became, in his words, humanity's irreplaceable companions. Humanity's irreplaceable companions, Yulin said slowly, turning the concept over in her mind. She was infatuated with the idea, but it felt dangerous somehow. Yulin had a knack for running ideas to their logical conclusion, making note of all potential pitfalls along the way. Ta-da! Saya chirped, holding her hands out to Yulin. Cradled within them was a Digimon dock, and Yulin could see something on its tiny screen. She bent in for a closer look. Is that an egg? Yulin asked cautiously. Yep! We're calling it Digitama, short for Digital Tamago. We thought it sounded a bit cuter to use Tamago instead of egg. A Digitama. Okay, Yulin said, trying to keep up. We found the data for this one while we were out exploring on the net, Saya said, practically vibrating with delight. And the dock allows us to see a virtual representation of its actual form, not just a series of numbers, Tominori chimed in. This is incredible, Yulin shouted. Hang on, did I did I just see it move? Kosuke said excitedly. Oh, is it going to hatch? Tominori squeaked, bounding over to his daughter. Hey, be careful, Dad! Saya chided as he snatched the device out of her hands. The Digimon dock fulfilled its purpose. Humans could at least keep Digimon somewhat comfortable and raise them longer than ever before. And research made leaps and bounds in the wake of this momentous achievement. The creatures formerly came to be known as Digital Monsters, Digimon for short. Sponsored poured money into the field. It was obvious to anyone paying attention that the Digimon could well be the AI key to shifting the balance of power on the net over the next decade or two. Whether or not Digimon were living beings was a debate for another day. They were of practical use now, and that was what was mattered. As the money poured in, Tominori Rusenji's stature within the university and academia at large continued to grow. Chapter 3, Part 5 In due time, Tominori Rusenji was promoted to a full-time professor, and around that time he was approached by a major big tech company that wanted to invest a significant sum and scale operations beyond his wildest dreams. It was enough to send Rusenji Electronics out of the startup orbit and turn it into a proper business. The number of employees swelled and the small husk of a factory that they'd been renting quickly became a bottleneck. They needed to think about moving. Everything seemed to happen at a breakneck pace for the core crew, who were all still undergraduates. But meeting Professor Usenji and the little monsters of the digital world had given them a massive head start in their careers. Well, that was fast, Yulin said warily. The digital world really does change lives, 
Saya said with an overjoyed laugh. She looked down at the ring that now sat snugly around her finger. Perhaps it wasn't the world so much as her world that was changing. I guess I should say congratulations. That would be appropriate, yes. Saya couldn't stop staring at the ring. She was engaged. Well, congrats then. Honestly, my heart is full knowing Kosuke could actually be bothered to ask your ring size and follow through with giving it to you. I know, right? Saya said this nonchalantly, showing it off once more. Maybe the digital world could change lives and the people who live them. Anyway, we've got a lot of new people around. That means a lot more egos to deal with. Their investment-fueled hiring spree led to a bevy of part-timers roaming around the place. Oh yeah, what are the new executives like, Yulin? Mostly auditors and compliance folks. This is still years down the road, but it sure looks like the professor has plans to take this whole thing public. That would necessitate shedding both the Rusangi Laboratory's image that was associated with the university and the small town factory identity of Rusangi Electronics to forge something more professional in its place. Yeah, well, I may not know a lot about running a business, but I do know that our investors won't get their money back unless we go public. We've been running way in the red ever since we founded this whole operation, Saya said. Indeed, their revenue had been almost zero, and their profits well below that. That's a venture-backed business for you, Yulin said playfully. Sure is, Saya agreed. And that's why they're all staying out of the professor's way while he's busy researching. Here's the goose that laid the golden egg. Sire! Kosuke yelled, emerging from the factory at a trot. Hey there, lover boy, Yulin said with a smirk. Wow, right into the banter, all right then, Kosuke said, looking not at all as offended as he sounded. He was too lovestruck to care anyhow. How dare you steal my adorable sire away from me? Yulin said, undeterred. He was suddenly shaving every day and wearing nice jackets. Was she supposed to just let that go unremarked upon? Okay, okay, I'm not some criminal. Anyway, look at this, Kosuke said proudly, taking up a helmet-like VR headset in his hands and sliding it onto Sai's head. What is this thing? The, the heck are you doing? Yulin spluttered, adding to the chorus of confusion. I think we've done it. Look, Sire, what you're seeing is... Yeah, I I see stuff, but I can't tell what any of it is. What the heck is going on? Sire shrieked in utter confusion. Monochrome images danced before her eyes. It looked like a virtual recreation of what an insect would see through its compound eyes. But Sire had a feeling it wasn't a virtual recreation at all that it was actually being filmed from some creature's viewpoint. That's the first footage ever taken through a Digimon's eyes. You're seeing through a Digimon's eyes right now. Professor Isenji would not rest on his laurels. He forged ahead with his research in pursuit of even more impressive results. He wanted to explore the digital world firsthand. There was so much more to learn about a world that came about on the network that a screen full of numeric values couldn't tell them. Surely there was a way to engage the five human senses and allow people to experience it for themselves. He wanted to see, hear, smell, taste and touch the digital world, 
and so he shifted to researching something he called the Digicore, a piece at the heart of each Digimon into which he believed he could transfer a human consciousness, thereby making it possible to experience, bodily, the digital world through the Digimon's eyes. The engineering and technological foundations already existed. Neurologists were well into studying how to convert the human consciousness and memories into data, specifically targeting the development of personal AI trained on that data. There were electronic devices that used sensors to directly modulate neurons, helping those who had lost their sight or hearing rebuild those nerve endings and motor functions. Those could be integrated into humanoid companion androids under development in the robotic sector. All of these disciplines were at their core investigating ways to build a human from scratch when taken together. That posed significant ethical hurdles, and the government regulated the space so tightly that none of these things would move beyond the research phase for 10, possibly even 20 years. The digital world, however, had no such ethical hurdles. It was all just a simulation after all. A world of bits and bytes. Therefore, the thinking went, it should be possible to use Digimon as a sort of VR camera. Not just any camera, though. One that links the Digimon's five senses with that of a human. If Digimon were truly AI creatures, then their sensory data should be easy enough to capture and interpret. All that remained was to get a human consciousness into the digital world and link it to that sensory pipeline. In other words, to embed it into the Digicore. This ought to keep me occupied for the rest of my life, Professor Usenji had said with a laugh. The research would be anything but boring. That much was certain. Usenji Electronics began exploring the fundamentals of mind-linking technology in secret. They had to minimise the risk and have answers for the ethical questions the technology presented if they were to dispel the notion that it was impossible or some sort of occult practice. Sai Rusenji was one of the first people to successfully link her consciousness with the Digimon. Mindling test complete, Yulin said over the PA system. She'd amend the report with the precise number of the test later. Saya laid on what looked for all the world like a repurposed dentist chair in test chamber four of the Rusenji Electricals lab. The sparse, grungy nature of the old factory building lent the proceedings a back-alley feel, like some seedy cyberpunk experiment being carried out by a shady doctor. Vital check, Yulin said flatly. Heartbeat, blood pressure, body temperature all normal, Kosuke replied, going down the list of the monitor in front of him. Saya wore a helmet that monitored her brainwaves, and other sensors meant to measure her vital signs were plastered all over her body. All the information her brain was processing came filtered through the Digimon to which she was mind-linked. All of this data, her vitals included, were then processed in real time by a supercomputer that had to live at the lab so it could run at full tilt. DS levels dropping, subject regaining consciousness, severing mind-link, Kosuke said calmly. Yulin calmly approached the chair with a bucket and a sheet in hand. Saya convulsed as she came to with a groan. She carefully reached her hands up as her legs kicked the chair repeatedly, as though her body was recalibrating and firing up all her muscles. 
She sat up and removed the sensor helmet from her head. Here, Yulin said, holding out the bucket. Ruff. I think, I think I'm getting used to it, Saya croaked with some effort. She broke out in a smile. The first time she successfully mind-linked, she woke up covered in her own vomit, another excreta in front of her father, fiancé, and closest friend. So this was definitely an improvement. Professor Rusenji clapped softly. Sufficient rest is required between mind-linking sessions. There is a significant risk of side effects, which can be overcome with time, simply knowing that is possible renders this experiment a rousing success. The founding members, Professor Usanji, Yulin, Kosuke, and Saya, were the only ones in test chamber 4, which required a unique security pass to enter. The mind-licking project was top secret, and only they knew about it. Nice work, Agu, Saya said, picking up the Digimon dock connected to the helmet she now held under her arm. The docks displayed showed a pixelated representation of a Digimon on its small display, under which was written Ogamon. The creatures were every inch the small monsters the professor had described. This one in particular was modelled after a bipedal carnivorous dinosaur. Regular searches of the network turned up greater numbers and species of Digimon all around the world, and sooner or later they would need to build a taxonomy in order to keep track of them all. Professor Rusenji, in the meantime, chose three different Digimon he'd hatched from their Digitama and gave one each to his student to raise. They were constantly exchanging tips as they learned how to best care for their new charges. The biggest change came from Kosuke, who began living according to a more regular schedule than he ever had previously on account of the Digimon's need for regular care and feeding. Digimon were fragile creatures, after all. Chapter 3, Part 6 Sai's Digimon dock was home to a dinosaur-like Digimon called Ugamon. Kosuke's held a ladybug-like Tentomon, and Yulin's held a Palmon. Palmon looked like... well, it looked like what it was. The result of a genetic experiment between a reptile and a flower. Its feet split into several root-like tendrils, its arms were veiny leaves from which sharp talons extended, and a massive flower grew out of the centre of its reptilian head. Professor Rusenji and his students gathered around a table in the test chamber, sipping tea as they went through a debriefing of Sayer's latest mindling experiment. Unlike biotech experiments or semiconductor manufacturing, Digimon research didn't have a clean room. It did, however, require high-speed internet, servers with plenty of headroom, and a rock-solid power supply. Well, that completes the battery of tests we set out for the three of us, Yulin said, checking the schedule. They were getting used to the process of transferring their consciousness to their partner Digimon's Digicore and experiencing the world through their senses. We've successfully mind-linked in a controlled test environment, both in the lab and by not leaving the confines of the Digimon dock, Kosuke said, picking up the device with his Tentamon on it. Though the tests were successful, all the students had experienced through their partner Digimon were the small quarters of the Digimon docks themselves. Which we experienced as a heavily pixelated black and white image, accompanied by the hiss of static and other noise, Yulin interjected. And that's a hardware problem. We need more processing power, Kosuke said, bristling at what he perceived to be the start of an argument. 
So you still have yet to see the digital world with your own eyes, Professor Risenji said to no one in particular. The goal remained the same. Leave the digital dock and explore the digital world firsthand. Set their Digimon free from the Digimon dock and out into their natural habitat of the net. That meant they would also need to learn to maintain control of their partner Digimon. If a Digimon escaped or the students were otherwise careless with their charges, that would be the end of it. There were no second chances. The three of them had to prove they could handle their Digimon with the precision of a team landing a probe on a small planet. I wonder if the landscape of the digital world will even look like anything we recognise, Yuln said, half daydreaming. She could conjure an image in her brain so long as it looked like Earth or any of the other planets in the solar system, but she had no idea what the digital world could possibly look like. All they'd seen of it to date were heaps of numerical values on a screen. The digital world has its own systems, the professor said softly. I beg your pardon, Professor? All three of them turned to look at him. I hypothesize that it has something akin to our food chain, survival of the fittest. These AI creatures fight with one another to see which is stronger. The stronger survive, while the weak sometimes perish, so in the end... Professor Usenji said, trailing off and letting his students fill in the gap. It wasn't so different from Earth. It had its own ecosystem capable of sustaining life and their top priority was to experience it for themselves. Kosuke is overseeing development of the Digimon control tools, which precedes his pace. Several Digimon have been let loose in the digital world, found elsewhere via the networks, and returned safely. This has produced a rich trove of data, Professor Usenji continued. They were little boomerangs now, venturing afield, but able to find their way back. This discovery came not from the cameras attached to the critters, but analysis of the data harvested from the Digimon themselves. How many have we failed to retrieve, Kosuke? Yulin asked bluntly. Oh, with the current toolset and navigation systems, I'll just say that our success rate is above 80%, Kosuke answered. Perfection was too much to ask for from software currently under development, let alone software being developed for an entirely unfamiliar world. Like humanity's race to the moon, Professor Usenji said. The first manned rocket in the Apollo program, Apollo 1, was actually the fourth such craft, and was due to be the third manned space flight. It never flew. A fire in the cabin killed all three astronauts during a routine test. Dad, Sai said, unsure of where this morbid anecdote was headed. That's a pretty dark story to just throw out there, like it won't jinx us, Yulin said, furrowing her brow. Several more unmanned test flights launched in the interim. The next crewed flight was Apollo 7, which successfully launched into Earth orbit. Apollo 8 successfully launched and orbited the moon multiple times before returning. It was the first flight to completely leave Earth's orbit, survey the dark side of the moon, and give humanity a glimpse of Earth from afar. The crew watched Earth rise from the moon's horizon. That is where we find ourselves in efforts to observe the digital world. Much as the Earth could not be seen from the dark side of the moon, they wished to immerse themselves completely in and observe the digital world over the net, where they would be unable to see what was happening in the real world. 
They dubbed this endeavour the Tartarus Program. If Apollo represented the sun, then this was a deep dive to find Tartarus in the underworld, somewhere in the vast seas of the net. The program's success would, would mean nothing less than humanity's arrival in the digital world, a monumental achievement to rival that of humanity's arrival on the moon. This was just the first significant step. Yulin, Saya, and Kosuke knew what had to be done. The three of them were about to become cybernauts in the digital world. The night before the TARDIS program truly kicked off, Yulin, Kosuke, and Saya visited the plot of land on which Tokyo University of Electrical and Computer Engineering was to be built in the Denrin district. Their breaths hung in the frigid air. Wow, they're going to build a whole university right here? Saya mused, spreading her arms wide to emphasise the scale of whole university. Yet another shiny new structure amid all the development that was Tokyo. The plot had already been cleared, but the foundation had yet to be laid. It was strange to see so much space without another building, or even a tree, in the way. Heavy machinery and a store of materials sat off to one side. The three of them stood in the quiet of the night, keenly aware that they were the only ones there. The night sky stretched out over the lights of the city, a vast window to infinite darkness. Still looking pretty empty, Kosuke said as he looked out over the plot. He jammed his hands into the pockets of his down coat and shivered slightly. There weren't any convenience stores or houses in the area yet. The only other structures were prefab buildings meant to serve as offices for construction workers. The light of a vending machine caught Kosuke's eye. He walked over to it. Yulin turned off the engine and stepped out of the white company car. She was the only one with a driver's license, so it fell to her to make this trip a reality. What possessed you to want to come all the way out here tonight, Saya? Aren't you curious about the place we might be working in someday? I just wanted to check it out. Yeah, hard to picture it now, but I guess we will be working here, Yulin said quietly. Once the university was moved and fully established, the goal was to establish a so-called venture village, with multiple office buildings in the area for businesses to move into. The Tokyo University of Electrical and Computer Engineering, true to its name, would house a supercomputer and a massive data centre, in order to attract prospective students. Those same pieces of equipment would also serve to propel the next stage of Professor Usenji's research. This is the only chance we'll get to see it this empty, before so many things and lives fill it up, Saya said, waxing poetic. Uh-huh, Yulin said, absentmindedly. I hope we'll all still be together ten years from now, Saya said. She gripped her Digimon dock tightly in her hand. See this, Agu? There's gonna be a whole new town right here. It'll be called the Denrin District. I hope it'll be easy for you and all the other Digimon to live in. The small pixelated dinosaur on the dock screen appeared to be looking back and forth as though wary of its surroundings. You talk to that thing all the time, huh? Yulin said, turning to Saya. You mean, you don't talk to Palon? Saya shot back. Oh, well, Yulin started. She'd honestly never really thought about talking to her partner Digimon. They wouldn't realise it until much, much later, but the mind-linking that they'd been engaging in to this point would be considered incomplete by the current standards, on account of the first version of the Digimon Dock's lack of features and slow network speeds. 
Direct conversation with partner Digimon would have to wait for the increased processing and network performance of a future Digivice. Saya was the first among them to recognise Digimon communication as an important feature, whether she realised it at the moment or not. I mean, we talk to dogs and cats all the time, and sometimes it feels like they understand us, right? Saya went on to draw the same connection between people and Digimon. Even if the little critters couldn't speak themselves, perhaps they could begin to understand humans and human language. Kosuke's software tools, which granted humans forcible control over Digimon through software commands, were the only way to communicate with Digimon at the time. If Digimon could somehow understand natural language though, no one would need specialised knowledge of the software to communicate with these AI beings. Yeah, that would be pretty handy, Yule admitted. In fact, sometimes I think I can already hear Agumon's voice, Saya blurted out. You can hear Agumon talking to you? Yeah, uh, when, when we're mind-linked, I mean. I'm pretty sure someone's talking to me anyway. So our partner Digimon might be able to talk to us when we're inside the Digicore. But you've never reported that. You have to keep it a secret. If they think I'm hearing things, they, they might kick me off the project, Saya pleaded. That much was true. They could always push her off in favour of an alternate candidate. It didn't help that she'd been the slowest of them to adapt to mind-linking. She was also the only one who vomited after each session, which made it all the more surprising that by all available metrics, she shared the strongest bond with her partner Digimon. Everyone expected that her mind-link with Agumon would produce the clearest footage of the digital world to date. What does it say? I don't know, but it feels friendly, like it's calling my name. Or it's glad that I've come back to play, Saya said. All things that were too squishy and metaphorical to properly quantify. But these creatures certainly had intelligence and personalities. It's just like you said, Saya continued. Said what? Contin connecting with Digimon is incredible and incredibly dangerous. Ah yeah, like encountering an extraterrestrial. The discovery of Digimon wasn't like the discovery of a new species, really, if anything. Yulin figured it was likely that humans were op operating on the incorrect assumption that Digimon intelligence and society were below those of humans. She gave voice to her concern. We think we've discovered the digital world, but what if we're the ones who've been discovered? All the more reason for us to continue our studies. The network has already caused our worlds to collide. Sai said, acknowledging Yulin's question. It was like pouring milk into coffee. The two couldn't be separated again. Humanity couldn't simply cut itself off from the network and ignore the digital world. My dad thinks you're the most important member of our team, you know, she added with a smile, abruptly changing the subject. Me? Not Kosuke? Yulin said, her voice rising in surprise. Nope, he's just a younger version of my dad, and I'm his daughter, so it's hard to separate me from that label. But you make this feel more like an official operation, like a company, Sai said to a blank stare and silence from Yulin. Here, I'll give you an example. Say we make a mistake or start heading down the wrong path in our research, you're basically the only one who could stop us. At least, that's what I think. Wait, what? What are you talking about? I know it's a lot. Oh, it's freezing. Can't believe the vending machine still has cold drinks in the dead of winter. 
Kosuke grouched as he walked up to Yulin and Saya. He handed each of them a hot drink. Yeah, it's chilly. Wind's pretty strong too. We can head back if you're ready, Yulin offered, hugging her own shoulders and giving a performance shiver. Let's stay a little longer. I'm good either way. It's been a minute since I got to just stand around and zone out, Kosuke noncommittally concurred. I'll be in the car then, Yulin said, resolutely walking away. She got in, fired up the engine, and turned on the heat. She watched Saya and Kosuke huddle together, looking up at the clear night sky, where the moon was the only thing returning their gaze. She rested her hands on the steering wheel and watched them through the windshield. Why'd they have to make such a display of everything? Slightly irritated at their showy affection, she pulled out her phone and took a sneaky photo of the two lovebirds. Rusenji Electronics' Tartarus program was at last ready for its debut in Test Chamber 4. On Professor Rusenji's orders, the attack team consisting of Yulin, Kosuke, and Saya were to simultaneously mind-link to their Digimon. Yulin was the captain, Kosuke the engineer and navigator, and Saya the one-woman survey team. They boarded a digital observation vessel they dubbed the Tartarus Probe and prepared to begin the first direct observation of the digital world through their partner Digimon, Palmon, Tentamon, and Ugamon. It was an abject failure. Chapter 3, Part 7 The Tartarus program, despite achieving half its stated objectives, was deemed a complete failure based on the results. A DMIA. Sayuri Senji, one of the first people to mind-link with the Digimon, was also the first person to go DMIA before the term existed. According to the logs from the Tartarus probe, the mission proceeded smoothly enough at first. Palmon, Tentamon and Agumon cruised through the vast networked sea on their very own virtual vessel, which their human partners controlled using Kosuke's suite of tools. Yulin, Kosuke and Saya fancied themselves astronauts orbiting the moon, but in practice, they were more akin to deep-sea explorers plumbing the depths in their submersible. The visibility certainly wasn't as good as it would be in space, for one thing, and the team had yet to figure out how to capture sufficiently crisp visual data. Not even the exceptionally strong mind-link between Ogamon and Saya could be captured adequately by their comparatively low-fidelity technology of the day, limiting the amount of information the team stood to gain. They may as well have been trawling the seafloor with little more than a small flashlight to guide them. The Digimon pressed on following the route that was programmed for them through the vast sea of junk data and digital noise. Yulin and Kosuke still don't know exactly what went wrong on the Tartarus probe. Something happened, but they couldn't make out what. The only one who would have seen whatever happened in the blurry black-and-white mush of a video feed was Saya. She alone would have seen a meaningful packet, or some sort of malicious code execution, or perhaps something that qualified as sentient. A Digimon, perhaps? Whatever it was, it was hostile. Even now, Yulin doesn't have anything to add to the story, given the limited data she had to work with. She was there when it happened, yes, but she didn't see or hear anything that would crack the mystery wide open. If forced, she would say she had a bad feeling just before it happened, 
but feelings aren't quantifiable data. All she knew was that Saya and Agumon's signals had disappeared by the time she came to. She remembered it was at the turning point of the mission, when they were plotting out their closest approach to the digital world. Some sort of malicious code or AI entity had attacked them, for lack of a better term. It's possible Saya's Agumon had been the target all along. Although, suppose it had all been an unfortunate accident, like a ship ramming into an iceberg or a large sea creature and sinking. There was nothing concrete to hang on to. All Yulin remembered was Kosuke's panic when confronted with the unforeseen circumstances. His fiancée's signal was gone, swallowed by some unseen monster, to hear him tell it. Their partner Digimon were only doing what they were programmed to do. Kosuke fought for Saya's inclusion as a one-woman survey team. Maybe if he had been the survey team instead, or activated manual controls and pulled her closer. But Kosuke didn't have that power. Professor Usenji did. The Tartarus probe was heavily damaged and barely functional. Palmon and Tentamon were injured as well. Right or wrong, the Professor prioritised Kosuke and Yulin's safe return, so they wouldn't be tempted to try and rescue Saya. He couldn't risk all three of them going DMIA on their very first mission. Shu Yulin, now a squad leader with the Digipolice, stood in the DDL lobby within Aberdeen Electronics. The wall-sized display rotated through its carousel of seasonal nature footage while she waited. Several years separated her from the failure of the Tartarus program. Years full of nights spent turning over the events of the mission in her mind, she and Kosuke returned to the real world to find Saya's comatose body lying beneath a sheet. Analysis of the mission data showed that her consciousness remained in Agumon's digicore, which itself disappeared from the site of the accident. Their best guess was that the digicore had been taken somewhere else within the digital world. Saya was officially DMIA, the first person on record to go missing in the digital world. With the benefit of hindsight, the why was obvious. She had run out of time. Her consciousness fused with Agumon's digicore, and nobody knew what became of either of them. Even after all this time, they still had no idea where Digimon who went DMIA ended up. The processes developed for the TARDIS program were evaluated across multiple measures. Though the footage was exceedingly noisy, that there was footage of the digital world at all was deemed a success. The scripts used to control the Digimon were an overwhelming success. Yulin and Kosuke returned safely, but Saya was DMIA. Over half of the stated goals were accomplished, but the loss of a crew member outweighed all of that. How could it be seen as anything other than a disastrous failure? There was nothing Yulin nor Kosuke could have done. They didn't see or hear anything out there in the vast sea that was the network. All they knew was that Saya was gone when they came to. They sent a person with a record of incomplete mind links out on a mission with a rookie Digimon. Mere babies, learning to totter along on their own two feet when they weren't sitting in a stroller. They should have been more careful. They should have built more contingencies into the plan. They had no idea how intelligent these lifeforms would be. Yulin thought she had a grasp of how risky it was. She understood they were essentially trying to contact aliens. Somewhere deep inside, 
She believed the digital world was the next frontier for humanity to conquer, that Digimon were beneath humans. They were so consumed with the thoughts of developing bleeding-edge technology to scale all the unknown hurdles that would stand in their way, working out approaches to deal with problem areas and potential hostile contact, that their communication withered and their imaginations narrowed. And now, Saya was gone. Her body was sent to the university hospital, where she never woke up from her coma. Her consciousness, her very essence, had been forcibly severed from her body. No one could quite pronounce her dead, but she wasn't alive either. Yulin wasn't sure the gods could even make a judgement call on that one. Professor Rusenji did everything he could to keep Saya in a stable condition and keep his students safe. He kept the Tartarus program and its mildly experiments going in secret to shield Yulin and Kosuke from the inherent risks. He had to ensure his research had a future, and they were key to its survival. The lengths he went to ensure his students were safe despite the loss of his daughter earned the respect of the small handful of staffers he briefed on the situation. Yulin couldn't remember the last time that she saw Kosuke. Was it really when he went to visit Saya in the hospital, right after the accident? But she often wondered what became of him. He had stopped coming to school and work, which was perfectly understandable. Before long, he stopped picking up the phone, answering emails, or so much as acknowledging her existence. It had been some time since she'd heard anything about him from Professor Rusenji either. You're sending her to America? Yulin recalled, asking in disbelief. There's a hospital that specialises in treating coma patients. They can care for her while minimising the harm to her body. But... I know. We won't be able to visit her. Not as easily, anyway. Perhaps that's for her best anyway. A student of your calibre shouldn't be brought to a standstill like this. You'll risk not graduating. What about Kosuke? I've spoken with him. He's decided to drop out. It was simply a matter of timing for him as well. I will support him however I can. Time stopped for her and Kosuke after the accident, as did, as far as they knew, the Tartarus program and research into the digital world. Both were frozen at Professor Rusenji's directive. She, Kosuke, and the Professor were now scattered to the wind, and they couldn't do much more than worry about one another. She wondered if it was healthy for the Professor to have thrown himself so completely into his research. Saya was a part of the lab, a part of the company, a part of the team that was. Yulin couldn't bring herself to try and contact Kosuke after he closed himself off from her. She figured it would be too painful, and Professor Rusenji became a commanding presence. She felt she couldn't engage him in silly conversations anymore. Bzzzt. Something suddenly appeared at the edges of Yulin's field of view, snapping her out of her trip down the rabbit hole of days long gone. A hololized sphere. Three of them, in fact, each marked with one of the three Digimon attributes, vaccine, virus, and data. They quickly rotated around, overlapping each other in places before completely disintegrating and vanishing without a trace. She wasn't any closer to an answer after all these years, but she couldn't tear herself away from the digital world. She'd just traded her lab coat and name tag for a uniform and a badge. Chapter 3, Part 8 A young man lay in bed in DDL's medical facility, covered with a single sheet. An IV feeds him a steady drip and a variety of cords snake out from the sensors plastered over nearly every inch of his body. 
Leon Alexander, 19 years old, American, hacker employed by Tokyo University of Electrical and Computer Engineering's DDL, alias Judge, frequently uses Pulsemon and its evolved forms, pronounced DMIA while mind-linked in the digital world at the following date and time. Yulin read out quietly to herself as she looked over the information Deputy Squad Leader Satsuki had compiled for her. The Digipolice had encountered Judge in the digital world under less than pleasant circumstances. That ultimate level Digimon hacker is just a kid? She said, looking down at him. His lips were dry, his complexion pale and gaunt, just like Saya. She kept reading Satsuki's notes. Direct cause of DMIA, VX developed along wall slum outskirts. Code RK, coordinates noted below. Yulin's brain filled in the Digipolice acronyms VX for Vortex, RK for Royal Knight. She swallowed hard. Even the vaunted hacker judge and his ultimate level Kazuchimon met with a grim fate after their encounter with a Royal Knight. The Royal Knights, now more than ever, seemed in a class all their own somewhere above even ultimate-level Digimon. The Royal Knights were widely understood to be extremely powerful gatekeeper AI, but that was all anyone knew of them. There was no escape if you were targeted. Any encounter with a Royal Knight was effectively a death sentence. The one surefire way to avoid attracting their attention, a general rule widely circulated among hackers, crackers, and the Digipolice alike, was to avoid trying to peek into the depths to begin with. Curiosity killed the cat, and all that. Or, in this case, an adventuresome spirit kills the sailor of a networked sea. Keep a healthy distance from the gateway, and any vortexes you see, and you'll keep your life. Why didn't you run once you saw the Royal Knight? Yulin wondered quietly to herself. Evasive maneuvers were the only way to survive an encounter like this. Perhaps he thought they were on the same side. Hackers are committed to justice, protecting Digimon, and eradicating Codecrackers. He might have known that they were dangerous, but thought they wouldn't be a threat. It was plausible. She kept reading. Patient reported DMIA by Codecracker Eiji Nagasumi. Eiji also reported contact with patient immediately prior to incident at DDL. Yulin looked down at the Digimon linker strapped to Leon's wrist. It was the same model as hers. The latest developed for research purposes by Professor Usenji himself, just in a different colour. That Eiji had one, didn't he? What would compel a hacker of his talents do such a thing? Surely he had as many reasons to avoid danger as to charge headlong into it. He's a student of mine, some years below you, of course. Yuan spun around toward the source of the voice. Hello, Professor. Forgive me for making you come all this way, but in my estimation, you're the only trustworthy officer on the entire police force, Professor Isenji said, slowly walking towards the bed. I met him once. I know he was your favourite student. Hmm, yes, I suppose you did meet him. I understand you helped with equipment selection the other day. I appreciate that, Yulin said, hoping to steer the conversation to happier topics. How are the pieces faring in the all-important court of public opinion amongst the rank and file? Very well. The Eleventh only uses equipment it knows it can trust, and everything remains in use. Professor Rusenji fidgeted with something in front of him. Yulin got a closer look and saw it was a hololized Betamon that was perched atop Leon's bed as he slept. 
I told myself I'd never let another student come to harm, he said, shaking his head as he stepped aside to sew Yulin something on a virtual monitor. She stepped closer to get a better look at the somewhat fuzzy video feed. She could make out the shape of a capsule that appeared to be filed with a coloured liquid, in which Yulin could see a woman suspended, motionless. That's Sire. This is the most recent footage that I have, he explained. Yulin stared at the feed of her closest friend suspended in some sort of life support capsule and felt nothing. She had overcome nothing and was no closer to helping Saya than she was on the day Saya went DMIA. She had spent so many nights wallowing in regret, pure agony, then back to regret that it must have broken whatever part of her used to feel. There was a time where she wouldn't have been able to look at the footage. She still wouldn't have sorted it out, but she couldn't do anything about the fact that Professor Rusenji had shown it to her now. Sometimes it was easy to forget he was still a father. Saya had been put in that capsule since she was transferred to a specialist in America, asleep, but still alive. How many years had it been? A whole new generation of students now studied under her father. Students who would have been babies back when she went missing. You haven't changed a bit, have you, Saya? Meanwhile, I'm looking older every day, Yulin said to the virtual monitor. From what she could see, Saya looked the same as she did the day she went missing. As far as Yulin was concerned, she was ageless and immortal. She recalled something about being in a coma slowing the body's metabolism to the point that aging itself slowed, then pushed the thought out of her mind. It was probably something she'd read in some novel or other at some point. You've never looked better, Professor Usenji said with a slight smile. Spare me, Yulin said dryly. No, I mean it. The professor was not the type for idle compliments, but when he did give them out, they were to former students. Perhaps it was easier to see things through rose-tinted glasses that way. Yulin imagined what life would be like had Saya been with them. She would have married Kosuke, maybe even had a kid. Professor Usenji would be a grandparent. She stopped there. No sense in building out of a life that could never be. Yulin straightened her stance. As good as it was for the professor to share this footage with her. That wasn't why she was here. There was news to deliver. Leon Alexander's case was being processed as a standard DMI incident, which meant it wouldn't be made public. A doctor would declare that he suddenly, inexplicably, lost consciousness and was now in a coma. She would ensure that his family was told the same. That boy's father is my friend. He should know the truth, if he doesn't already. However, Yuan said sharply. Yeah? Professor Senji grunted. The Eleventh is very interested in Leon's contact with a code-cracker by the name of Eiji Nagasumi. To that end, I have some questions. He's contracted with you, is he not? He shows a lot of promise, the professor said casually. There was no point in denying Eiji existed or hiding his connection with the boy. Is that so? So he wouldn't have any reason to intentionally DMIA anyone nor attempt to murder them? This was all a very unfortunate accident, Professor Usenji said sternly, though it was only a theory. Okay. Eiji is a member of SOC. He's new, but he's taking on leadership roles. 
We're aware. He's bested my deputy squad leader. Ah, oh, yes, Satsuki the slug lover. This is off the record and just between us, but I'm a fan of hers. I know all about her secret account where she uploads all of her slug videos, the professor said with a mischievous grin. Yulin let out a pained sigh. She couldn't tell if he was joking or serious, and didn't care to derail the interview long enough to find out. Tartarus will back Eiji up, as will I, seeing as I asked him to join the SOC, he continued, hardening his gaze. The message was clear. Do what you must as part of the Digipolice, but don't get too involved with Eiji. Are you saying you'll shield him? Just like I did for you and Kosuke. Yulin's heart grew heavy. He'd gone to great lengths to prevent them both from having any admissions of responsibility regarding Saya's coma, coerced out of them, and Yulin wouldn't be standing before him as a member of the Digipolice if he hadn't. I'll tread carefully with him then. That's all I ask. But I'm not extending the same consideration to Tartarus. I can't afford to let him operate unchecked. Yulin tapped a photo on her phone. It was a photo of the last night she, Saya, and Kosuke were all together at the future site of the Denrin district. What is Tartarus's, or should I say Kosuke's, play here? Yulin knew the truth. Tartarus was none other than Kosuke Kizakata. They walked very different paths following the accident that ended the Tartarus program. Yulin graduated and then made herself scarce, spending some time alone, instead of remaining on staff in Professor Isanji's lab. She drifted aimlessly, living the life of a codecracker or a hacker, but not caring in the least which label was applied to her. In the end, she was scouted by the police and started working as a white hat hacker. She had the skills, and they were in desperate need of cybersecurity staff. For a moment, it seemed as though Resenji Electronics would dissolve. In the 11th hour, however, a tech heavyweight floated enough of an investment to help the company rebrand as Abaddon Electronics and continue operation. The rest was history. With Professor Usenji serving as co-founder and head of engineering, the company made significant advancements. In the time... Tokyo University of Electrical and Computer Engineering opened, and his name was once again on everyone's lips in business and political circles alike. Who knows what would have happened had he kept his name on the company. Perhaps he'd keep a company with billionaires. Yulin amused herself by imagining what might have been. At any rate, it seemed a shame to take his name off the company, and either company would be without Kosuke, its star programmer. Yulin herself wouldn't hear his name again until some years later, when the digital world was common knowledge among those in the know, but not yet a concern for the general public. Code-cracking teams were asserting themselves, with the aggressive SOC leading the charge. Finding out that Kosuke was actually Tartarus stirred up a slew of complicated emotions. It was as though a watch frozen at the exact moment Saya had gone DMIA, and it suddenly started ticking again, setting their stories in motion once again. Yulin hololized Rudamon, her partner Digimon. This is Professor Isenji. Say hello, Yulin nudged. The rookie Digimon ducked its helmeted head and offered a meek greeting. Hello there, dear Ryu, the professor said with his characteristically gentle smile. He always had been exceedingly kind towards the creatures. 
He's the one who entrusted you to me when I was setting up the Digipolice, she continued. That's right. The code cracker, Kosuke Kisakata, who's earning himself a bad reputation? Well, his partner Digimon is named Dorumon. You each hatched from different Digitama, but you do share some common ground. Yulon said as she gently lifted Rudamon's head up to meet her gaze. You speak of this? Rudamon said, showing Yulon their forehead. Yes, the interface on your forehead. According to our analysis, this classifies Rudamon as an older type of Digimon. What was it you called them, Professor? Ah oh, yes, prototype Digimon. Still doing your homework after all these years. Very good, Yulin, especially considering that report wasn't made public, the professor said. Company secret or not, it was in Yulin's head, and he couldn't do anything about that. Prototype Digimon are a rare species. Living fossils, like the coelacanth. That didn't mean they were behind in terms of specs, just that they were an older design. Rudamon is a vaccine type, Dorimon's a data type, I know there's a virus type prototype Digimon out there as well, and our surveillance network is a bit hung up on that one. Eiji Nagasumi's Lugamon. DDL took Lugamon in from the wall slum. I'll spare you the details in between, but I decided to entrust it to Eiji. He has shown a lot of promise, just like you and Kosuke, the professor answered calmly. And D4, a company secret, I presume? Correct, Yulin, but I wouldn't hide anything from you. Eiji's DS values with Lugamon's rival those of Leon, the hacker they call Judge, and his partner Digimon. That powerful? Yulin felt herself tense up involuntarily. What constituted a good score differed compared to when she was part of the TARDIS program, but compatibility was still measured in DS values at the end of the day. And getting better every day. Isn't that exciting? In my estimation, AG might match size levels, he said, eliciting a slight gasp from Yulin. The technology at his disposal has grown in leaps and bounds as well, compared to what you are using. There's no telling what kind of paths all of you will forge in the digital world, Professor Usenji said, gesturing as though he was petting the interface on Rudamon's forehead. Yulin reached the end of her questions. Just one last thing. Why give Eiji a prototype Digimon and a Digimon linker? To starve off boredom, I suppose. A very fitting answer coming from you, Yun said with a smirk. A useful sophistry, even if it, he was being sincere. The young one will one day surpass whatever my feeble old imagination can conjure, and it's my job to look after them as they take that journey. For the sake of my research, the future of the digital world, and the Digimon themselves. Yulin could tell that he meant it. The future of Digimon and the digital world? Well, that certainly puts me at ease, Yulin said dryly. The professor let out a slight chuckle. Thank you for your time today. Our mission at the Digipolice remains the protection of everyone living within Japan's borders. We'll be asking some questions of Eiji Nagasumi with regards to an investigation of Leon Alexander's DMIA. I must say I'm glad, Professor Rusenji interjected. I'm glad that people still want to explore the depths of the digital world. It doesn't matter to me who gets there, be they a hacker, a co-cracker, or the police, or the government. He continued to act as though he was patting Badamon. Sorry? Yulin asked, taken aback at the interruption. I couldn't stop Kosuke if I wanted to. Only you can do that, Yulin. With that, her phone rang. She hastily excused herself and answered the curl. Go ahead, Sasuke. Right now?
Muhammad DDL. Why? What? Something very strange was going on in the digital world. Chapter 3, Part 9. I want to help Posmon too. Our friend. Lugamon said forlornly as they sat in Eiji's small, stuffy apartment. Eiji continued to wallow in the misery of his own making. It was his fault his one-time best friend was DMIA. Leon Alexander, hacker alias Judge, sacrificed himself to save Eiji. He grabbed the Royal Knight and threw himself into a vortex. Eiji had never known such regret. Regret for harbouring such an enmity towards Leon simply because he was a hacker and Eiji was a codecracker. For following through on the SOC's request to take revenge on Leon for even taking Professor Rusenji up on his job offer in the first place. Lugamon, for their part, wasn't vomiting in the toilet through a veil of tears. They simply wanted to help Pulsemon because it felt like the right thing to do. Isn't it similar to how I digivolved and lost control? Lugamon wondered aloud. It was a solid theory. AG really did want to fight Leon with every fibre of his being, but it was more than a simple contest to see who was stronger which was how he figured Lugamon approached the situation. Lugamon saw Pulsemon as a friend. Eiji saw himself as a codecracker, and that made Leon, a hacker, well, they were adults now, things were different, and they couldn't be friends anymore, or so Eiji wanted to believe. Lugamon, I'm the reason you digivolved to Halugamon and went berserk in the first place, Eiji muttered dejectedly. Eiji knew the power his emotions had over Lugamon whenever he was inside the Digicore. In some cases, the emotions of a partner human were beneficial to Digivolution, but they could just as easily be disruptive. Lugamon had no reason to match Eiji's intensity and Digivolve into its ultimate form, absent the pressure from his partner. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I would never have screwed up that badly. Lugamon chirped, rolling over onto their back and wiggling their fluffy belly. I just felt the need to beat him, to walk over him on the way to greater things. The codecracker in me felt compelled. Yeah, well, I wasn't about to lose to Pulsemon either. That's the difference. You didn't want to lose. I was terrified of losing. Eiji figured he'd lose the trust of the SOC, and Professor Risenji would stop sending him work. I'd be back to my unpredictable, unstable life. I just couldn't face that, he said, finally saying what had been on his mind. It didn't sound all that embarrassing now that he'd said it, but it was difficult to give voice to nothingness. Well, then let's go help him already. I'll save Pulsmon, you save Leon. Yeah, let's do it, Eiji said, wiping the vomit from his mouth. They had to do it. Otherwise, Eiji would never leave the confines of this cramped little apartment ever again. The same apartment he'd been in with, with the stability he was so desperately wanting to protect. But it was his. His mind and body had already hit rock bottom. He'd seen scarier things than losing a fight. Alright, Eiji, mind link. You got it. Eiji shot back, tapping the Digimon linker. An error greeted him for his trouble. Ah, the vital check failed. We can't mind link, Lugamon said with a sigh. Hush, that bad? But had he really wasted away physically too? Rest is required between mind linking sessions in order for the body to recover. Clearly, despite lying motionless under the covers in his futon for several days, Eiji hadn't actually been resting. Nah, that looks easy enough to bypass, 
Easy, you say? AG replied, eager to hear more. Then again, if I do let you back into my digicore, I might go berserk. Oh, fair point. AG wouldn't want someone as atrophied and strung out as him hitching a ride on his soul, either. We'll have to find some way of looking for them from here. Lugamon's words brought AG back to reality. How could they possibly search for Leon from the real world? What happened to Kazuchimon once they passed through the hole the vortex opened in the firewall? Look, I don't know how to contact a Digimon that's fallen into a vortex either, if that's what you're going to ask, Lugamon said preemptively. You couldn't ask around in the war slum? I did a bit of that for a while while you were zonked out in your futon, but I didn't get anywhere. Nobody knows what's beyond the firewall. AG could post a reward for Pulsemon's capture on Grimm, but some street rat codecracker asking the Digimon of the war slum to do something they didn't know how to do wasn't going to get them anywhere. Still, they had to try anything and everything. If only AG could figure out where to start. A doorbell rang. No, AG's doorbell rang. He hadn't ordered anything, so it couldn't be a delivery. A door-to-door -door salesperson? A noise complaint from a neighbour who thought he was being too loud? AG had to see who it was. He silently got up and worked his way over to the monitor attached to the doorbell. There was no one to be seen. Wait, no. He could just make out the shoulder of someone's jacket at the edge of the frame. Someone was doing their best to hide. Totally legitimate behaviour. Easy enough to avoid, though. He just had to pretend not to be home, and... The Digimon linker on his wrist let out a chime. Whoa. A message notification. From Tartarus. I'm at your apartment right now. Tartarus or not, whoever it was definitely knew AG was home now, that he'd been startled into giving himself away. You're in there, aren't you, Codecracker Fang? A deep voice bellowed through the door. AG knew it in an instant. Tartarus really was at his door, but he heard other voices bleeding through the door and, and the intercom. Hey, you the leader of the SOC? Yeah, what of it? You startled me. Except there wasn't even a hint of surprise in the reply. AG froze. What the? Lugamon, where'd you go? AG whisper shouted. The Digimon's hololized form was nowhere to be seen. They hadn't slipped out through the wall, had they? Hololizing in front of anyone other than AG outside the DDL was a violation of the contract that AG had signed with Professor Usenji. The electric lock slid open with a mechanical whir and a thunk. The locks on these cheap apartments were child's play for any Digimon to hack. The door slid open, and Lugamon slid in through the crack. Hey, AG, the real-life Tyrus is standing out there, some old guy. You've got to be kidding me. The owner of the deep voice now darkened AG's doorway. His build wasn't all that different from AG's, and he wore a black jacket. He slowly took off his frameless glasses, which looked like they might also be a piece of tech in their own right. Judging by his face, he was in his... 30s? 40s? He clearly hadn't been worn down by soul-sucking corporate desk jobs, so it was hard to tell. The lack of crisp corporate dress didn't make him any less intimidating, though. May I come in? He asked, looking down at his feet. Sneakers were haphazardly piled up in the small entranceway, leaving him no place to step in and remove his own shoes. Oh, uh... AG spluttered as the man removed his shoes and stepped into the apartment anyway, shutting the door behind him. At least get some tea going. AG, you've got a visitor, Lugamon said gruffly. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, don't go out of your way for me. Besides, I imagine you don't have tea at the ready anyhow, living on your own like you do. This isn't a bad little space. How big is it? It's, uh, three tatami. One of those trendy small rooms, eh? Wow, a lot of dedicated shower room, electric lock, intercom, small kitchen. Tartarus peered into the toilet, the door to which was wide open. Wow, you've even got a fancy washlet toilet? I wouldn't mind living here myself. Yeah, but when you sit down on the toilet, your knees prevent the door from shutting, and the walls are thin. We can hear the neighbours getting all snuggly and mushy, Lugamon quickly added. The apartment I lived as a student was a wood frame building that was already 40 years old by the time I moved in. It was infested with rats. Is this, is this for your parents? The man asked, pressing his hands together as he knelt down before the small altar. Eiji had no idea what the etiquette was for someone barging into your house and then paying their respects, and simply lowered his head in thanks. Oh, the WW flight. What an awful accident. Tartarus had clearly done his homework on Eiji's story. Eiji's parents had indeed died as a result of the Digimon attack on their flight, but their bodies were never recovered and no funeral was held. After a month, they were presumed dead, Eiji filed out the paperwork and the mortuary tablets engraved in their honour, and set up the small altar in their honour. The money the airline paid out to the accident victims was long gone for a variety of reasons, and the money he got from selling his parents' house merely offset the remaining payment on the mortgage. That left their life insurance payouts, which had since been spent on daily necessities. Eiji had no bandwidth for high school entrance exams and joined the ranks of the unemployed until he discovered the world of code cracking. Oh, here. I brought you some supplies, the man said, placing a convenience store bag on the floor. Eiji looked inside to find a sports drink and a bottle of tea within. Uh, Eiji's voice was a dry rasp. Just take it, Eiji. You haven't had anything in ages, Lugamon urged. I thought that might be the case. That's why I came, Tartarus said. What do you mean? A.G. asked, befuddled. Someone very important to me went DMIA too. It was my fault. I didn't eat anything for a good long while. I replayed the moment endlessly in my head, regretting every little thing I didn't do differently. Threw up, drowned my sorrows in alcohol, lost all hope, and threw up again for good measure. Wait, DMIA? Who? When? A.G. asked, frantically trying to piece the story together. This was Tartarus, the leader of the SOC. The same Tartarus who never let a single person on any of his mission go DMIA, wasn't it? Tartarus put another shopping bag on the table. Eiji's stomach growled as if on cue. Finally, he got to see what he'd been smelling that, had, that he had been too distracted to ask, ask ever since Tartarus stepped foot in his apartment. Beef bowls with extra meat and pork miso soup. That sound tells me you've got the will to live. Go on, eat he said to Eiji, who was too surprised to eat. Then take a shower, a nice, long, hot shower. You're young enough that that ought to bring you back to life. What, are you too weak to take the lid off and split those disposable chopsticks? Thanks for the food, Eiji said as he picked up the chopsticks and lifted the first bite to his mouth. Chapter 3, Part 10 Eiji felt better than he had in some time after eating, taking a nice, long shower and changing his clothes. Lugamon, meanwhile, entertained their guest. Thankfully, said guest was well-versed in the digital world and knew how to handle conversing with a hololized Digimon. 
Thanks for sticking around until I could... Oh, wow. My place is a mess. Sorry about that, A.G. muttered, scrubbing his head dry with a towel as he sat down. Don't worry about it. My place doesn't look much different, the man replied. (sighs) A.G. let out a massive sigh, days worth of anguish forcing its way out of him. And it's a bit late to be saying this, but sorry for barging in here unannounced. The man took a sip from his canned coffee. He looked supremely relaxed and at ease, and A.G. found himself strangely relaxed as well. It wasn't as though his apartment was full of potential weapons. He didn't even own any knives. So, uh, rude as this might be to ask after you brought me the food, which, thank you, by the way, who are you again? Tartarus, leader of the SOC. The man behind the Avatar, true to his code Cracker Roots, he wasn't about to give Eiji his real name. Ah, I'm Eiji, Eiji Nagasumi. Of course. The man showed up at the same time Eiji got that text message from Tartarus, and Lugamon had mentioned as much. You want proof that I am, in fact, the leader of the SOC, don't you? If you've got any. Proving you are who you are in the net is one of the harder things to do, but maybe this will be enough. Dorimon. A hololized Digimon emerged from the Digimon linker on Tartarus's wrist. Hey, that's the raggedy Digimon we met in the war slum, Lugamon barked. The Digimon before them was the one who tasked them with mapping the 9th district as an entrance exam of sorts for the SOC. They removed their rags to reveal a bushy tail and small wings protruding from their back. They were a rookie Digimon, about the same size as Lugamon. My name is Dorimon, and I'm not raggedy. This is my friend and partner Digimon, Tartarus said by way of introduction. The three-mat apartment was beginning to feel quite cramped with two people and two Digimon now sitting inside. Wait, no, hang on, you're the interviewer! A.G. yelped, pointing directly at Tartarus. The interviewer you met at the start of all of this is Tartarus's other avatar, Dorimon confirmed. Only a handful of people were supposed to know about that little entrance exam, so even if he was lying about being Tartarus, he was at least pretty high up in the SOC. Okay, so why? A.G. asked. Yeah? Why would Tartarus, the legendary codecracker, bother with overseeing my interview? I can only think of one reason. You knew why I was trying to get into the SOC in the first place. Tartarus must have known about Professor Isenji's directive. It was the only way Eiji could make it make sense. Heh. Marvin was right on the money about you. You feign ignorance, but you're observant when it counts, Dorimon said approvingly. He said what? Eiji swung his head around to look at Dorimon. Exactly right. We know you're Professor Usenji's spies. Come to see what you can find out about the SOC, Dorimon continued, brushing Eiji's question aside. And you let us into the SOC anyway? A.G. asked, a little uncertain if he should direct his questions to the Mandrigan coffee beside him or the Digimon beside him. Well, we needed your muscle for one. I mean, you saved Martin's life during the attack on the X-Nation's data servers, which I would like to once again thank you for. Yeah, no problem. You're rude, but polite when it counts, Lugamon said, reappraising Doramon. All of this is to say that if we knew we could trust you precisely because you were the professor's little spy. 
if a codecracker was good enough for Professor Resenji, they were good enough for the SOC. Wow, codecracking teams and Digimon respect the Professor's instincts? No wonder they had welcomed him into the upper ranks so quickly, despite his inexperience and lack of accomplishments. But there's another arguably more important reason. And I, I want to ask about that. What was the SOC going to do once they had an ultimate level Digimon? Eiji said as he opened one of the energy drinks and began chugging. He didn't feel like he was going to puke anymore, and his Digimon linker reported that his vitals were more or less back to normal. That's my story to tell, Tartarus muttered, catching Eiji off guard. A parable, if you will. Tartarus, the Codecracker's story, you mean, Doramon clarified. A story that now involves you and Lugamon, not to mention me. Wait, so everything's gone according to the SOC's plan? Eiji said, trying to jump ahead. I wouldn't go that far. All the necessary characters are in place, but we can't control the outcome. Even if everyone plays their part, Doramon said, potentially. Eiji felt like he finally had something to grasp onto as all this unfolded. He still didn't understand the big picture yet, but he finally put a finger on why he was so wary of this Doramon. It wasn't simply the fact that they were Tartarus' partner Digimon, it came to the wit and will that they possessed. He knew Digimon were creatures with personalities and free will in their own right, of course. The Professor had disabused him of the notion they were mere AI. But there was something fiercely independent about this Digimon. He couldn't shake the feeling that they had their own goals in mind. Why else would they take such a lead role, leaving their human partner to just sit back and watch the show? What are you talking about? I only do what I want to do. Lugamon bristled at the notion that they were a pawn in anyone's plot. Indeed you do, Lugamon. AG and I, we're going to save Leon and Pulsemon. Lugamon had his own agenda, uncomplicated as it was. That's why Tartarus, the leader of the SOC, is here in your home, Doramon said. The implications were clear. They were going to need the SOC leader's help if they were going to rescue their friends. Someone who understood the intricacies of mind-linking and the digital world. Eiji saw their plan take shape in his mind's eye. Lugamon and I want to save Leon Alexander and his partner Digimon Pulsemon, who have gone DMIA. We're hoping you can tell us how to best go about that, Eiji said carefully. Need I remind you it was us, the SOC, who requested you retaliate against the hacker known as Judge? Doramon shot back. Leon destroyed Machinedramon during the attack on the X-Nation server. That much was true. That was all the justification that they needed. Assuming blame is the easy part, Leon is DMIA because of my mistakes. Besides, they didn't care how Leon was punished as long as he was. And I finally managed to digivolve to my ultimate form, only to go completely berserk. Lugamon growled bitterly. Then it is clear, Lugamon cut in, that we still share a common goal. We do? Something still felt off to Eiji. He couldn't help but think there was more to do this with this Codecracker and his partner Digimon than met the eye. That's where the SOC's true purpose lies. We aim to save those who have gone DMIA. That's the reason Tarus established a team in the first place. That wasn't quite what Eiji was expected to hear. Codecracking teams were usually formed to investigate something for a fee, 
or else for some other purpose that appealed to some ideal or another. At least, that was what AG thought they were built around. So it's not about freedom of the net or in the digital world? Those are the Codecracker's ideals, yes. But the core of the SOC is built around a much narrower vision. One shared only with a handful of people at the top. Marvin being one of them, humans and Digimon may belong to completely different worlds, but we have agreed to work together to see this through. Doramon said, the implication being that everyone present was mind was like-minded, Eiji turned his gaze to Tartarus. Okay, so, let's go back to something you said earlier. I've been told that Tartarus never let anyone go DMIA on his missions, but earlier you told me that you've been through what I've been through, that someone went DMIA, and it was your fault. Yes, his reputation precedes him, but it's a misunderstanding. One that gives me too much credit. Tartarus said, stepping on the Digimon's explanation. Eiji sat quietly, waiting for someone to speak. I was the first person to lose someone in the digital world. I became a meticulous planner in order to avoid making the same mistake twice. That kind of behaviour earns people a reputation. Tell me more. Eiji said. Tartarus fixed him with a steely gaze that softened into a hint of pain. As much as you're comfortable with, I mean, he added, trying to gauge the man's reaction. Tartarus agreed to tell his story. Eiji figured this was his plan all along. What else could possibly have brought him to Eiji's door? Chapter 3, Part 11 My name is Kosuke, Kosuke Kizukata, the man said, finally revealing his identity to Eiji. Kosuke, nice to meet you, Eiji returned. Are you sure you want him to know that? Doramon asked, concern creeping into their voice. Eiji didn't get the feeling that he was a particular concern, so much as Doramon was just generally wary of everyone and everything. Their attitude was only jarring in contrast to Lugamon's self-absorption and Pulsemon's impishness. It's only fair. And here I thought a healthy bit of symmetry made for easier negotiating. That's an unusual last name, Kizakata. Eiji said, breaking up the pedantic argument that was brewing between Kosuke and Dorimon. It supposedly has roots in northeastern Japan. It's written with the kanji for elephant and the gata half of nigata, but I've lived enough of my life online that I don't get many opportunities to use my real name these days. The advent of Grimm and its suite of economic services meant a full-time codecracker could basically live the entirety of their life online, to the point that their handle or account name could, for all intents and purposes, become their real name. So, uh, who are you looking for, Tartarus? Lugamon asked. Yeah, you said you they were someone important? Eiji added, fishing for more info. It happened when I was in university. So, like, a long time ago? Eiji said, half-joking. I have a feeling this is going to be a long story, Lugamon muttered as they sat down. Eiji, the discovery of the digital world, of Digimon themselves, of mind-linking technology, all that came into being before you did, Kosuke said. Eiji stared. That long ago? They didn't exactly teach the history of the digital world in schools, nor were there many five-minute videos summarising its history on the net. Then again, that also meant he couldn't fact-check these statements if he wanted to. 
I was one of the first people to MindLink. Back then, the hardware was the bottleneck that prevented us from doing it for too long. It was far less precise in its infancy, making it far more dangerous than it is today, he said, glossing over the more technical details. I was part of a small crew of people who would be the first to see the digital world for themselves. It was another member of that crew who went DMIA. We didn't have the term for it at the time, of course. So Kosuke had lost someone too, along with their partner Digimon. Eiji felt some of the lingering doubts about Kosuke lift, replaced by a deep sense of empathy. Are we the same? That's why I became a codecracker, Kosuke continued. From then on, he dedicated his life to saving the person who had gone DMIA. He opened a virtual monitor displaying a grim message board post, asking for information on something Eiji recognised immediately. A black Algamon! Eiji shouted. It was the same one he'd seen a 100 million DC reward for not long ago. Marvin told him that that was mere pocket change for Tartarus. This black Algamon was the partner Digimon of the crew member who went DMIA. I want to find them. And your friend, the, the, the fleshy one in the real world, has been in a coma all this time? Lugamon asked. Yes, Kosuke replied, adding that they were being kept at a special medical facility overseas. He supposed that they would eventually need to move Leon from the DDL medical bay to the same specialised care facility. Though, he cautioned, there was no proof that the body in the coma could be kept alive indefinitely in the first place. I haven't even found any concrete leads as to the Black Algamon's whereabouts, he said, finally. There wasn't much hope he'd ever find it. Suppose you find them, the partner Digimon, I mean. Can you save the person who went DMIA? A.G. asked. Professor Rusenji had of course told him that once someone went DMIA, their consciousness fused with the partner Digimon's Digicore. A.G. couldn't imagine how all of it worked, not having experienced it himself, but he definitely knew that it was not good. We believe the DMIA patients lose the capacity for self-awareness, Doramon answered. Uh, huh, A.G. said tentatively. He wasn't quite sure what that meant. Supposing that a Digimon who goes DMIA does not return, we expect the fusion of a person's consciousness with the Digicore would lead to severe errors in the partner Digimon as well, Kursuke continued, following another tangent entirely. If the person were merely unconscious, the Digimon themselves could at least send messages to the person's codecracker or hacker allies, or, worst case scenario, the Digipolice. Theoretically, anyhow. There were no known cases of this actually happening. What was worse, Leon and Kazuchimon had fallen through a vortex into the depths beyond the firewall. Even if he did manage to escape from the Royal Knight, he'd have almost no hope of finding his way back. But there is hope, Kosuke said, sharing a bit of data from his Digimon linker. Ooh! Lugamon cooed as they stood up and touched the tip of their nose to the data file. Easy, pup. It's not food, Doramon chided. Eiji briefly marvelled at how easily Lugamon was drawn in by the promise of something to eat. They were modelled after a wolf, and yet somehow completely ill-suited to any sort of watchdog duty, given how food-motivated they were. The data file opened up into a hololized 3D model. A syringe? 
AG muttered under his breath. Gah! Lugamon yelped, backing away until their back rested against the wall. Afraid of needles, are you? AG said with a smirk. So I hate needles. What of it? Shut your trap, Lugamon said with disgust. My old dog used to hate them too, now that I think about it. Sorry, involuntary reaction, Lugamon said, hastily composing themselves and glancing at a vexed Kosuke. Doraemon, growing increasingly impatient, began rapidly explaining the situation in an effort to prevent any further digressions. Yes, a syringe, as you can see, filled with medicine tailor-made for DMIA patients. Medicine? So you can recover from it? A.G. Borderline shouted. Could the data in this syringe really wake Leon up from his coma? It contains a medical-grade stimulant. Uh, okay, A.G. said, thrown by the scary-sounding description of it all. It reminded him of the kinds of dangerous drugs he'd been told to avoid. It should, in theory, peel the human consciousness away from the digicore, granting a window for self-awareness to return. So you're saying that's possible? Well, the drug was originally formulated with the goal of extending the amount of time one could safely mind-link. Oh yeah? In the simplest terms, the medicine increases focus. So, like this stuff? Eiji said, picking up his energy drink. A little energy boost, so you could mind-link for a little bit longer. It made sense enough to Eiji anyhow. The side effects prevented it from being widely used, but it showed promise as a drug that might be able to separate a DMI patient's consciousness from their partner Digimon's Digicore, entirely in AI-simulated trials, of course. Said experiments were conducted with real Digimon, using an AI copy of human subjects' consciousness to stimulate a DMI patient's consciousness. When the medicine was administered, the simulation determined that the AI copy could be successfully separated from the digicore. So, if we give this to Leon... Well, we can't give this to Leon Alexander's physical body in the DDL medical bay. We have to administer it to his partner Digimon, wherever in the digital world they may be, Doraemon corrected. The 3D model of the medicine-filled syringe continued to float in the air before them, slowly rotating in place. Okay, so, like, did Marvin develop this, or...? No, this was provided by a lab. Provided? Which lab? D4, Professor Isenji Laboratory, Doramon replied, snapping AG to attention. Abbott Electronics' own DDL had developed a potential cure for DMI patients? One made by Professor Isenji, no less? On second thought, of course he had. No one else could have done it. But... Something kept tugging at the back of Eiji's brain. Why would a bunch of code crackers develop something like this? Eiji had to ask every last question on his mind if he was going to trust these two. We made a deal with Professor Isenji, Doramon said calmly. What? what? What kind of deal? We provide him with the drug. He gives us all the clinical data resulting from the trials. Those are the terms. It made sense to Eiji. If these weren't trials to be run on AI copies, but on real DMIA patients, it'd have to take place in the lawless digital world, on codecracker patients who operate outside the law to begin with. And you are okay with that, Kosuke? AG asked, turning to Tartarus. Even if they were to find the Black Agumon, there was zero guarantee that the drug would save Kosuke's colleague. 
If it all went sideways, they were taking someone's life in their hands and conducting a human experiment. Kosuke said nothing, and simply opened another virtual monitor. The monitor revealed a security camera feed, shot from the ceiling. Eiji quickly gathered it was the feed from a medical facility, but this was no ordinary hospital. There were several large capsules, and someone was floating inside the coloured liquid within this one in particular. Eiji could just make out the features of a young woman in the fuzzy image. Is she the one that got lost? This is the only way I get to see her anymore. Once in a blue moon, when they send these video updates. Her body is just barely being maintained, and nothing more. We don't know what will happen if we successfully administer the drug and she regains consciousness. If she regained consciousness at all. The simulation suggested she would, but they were just that. Simulation. The drug has given me hope, Kosuke said, closing his hand around the data and the syringe. You trust Professor Isenji, don't you? Eiji said, without thinking. Do you not? I do, absolutely, Eiji replied without hesitation. Knowing the drug came out of D4 is enough for me, not to mention I'm a wanted codecracker, and here you are in the real world coming to me with all of this. I believe you, and I trust Professor Isenji. It all wove together perfectly in Eiji's mind. If they both trusted the professor that much, they could trust one another too. So, can we count on her cooperation, Eiji, Lugamon? Doramon asked. Yeah, you're in too, right, pal? You bet! I'll jab the needle right into that little spark plug's butt myself, Lugamon gleefully answered. How wonderfully crass, Doramon sniped. That's enough out of you. You want to go? Okay, yeah, okay. L let's stop before we do anything we regret. Eiji said, trying to placate his partner Digimon. Eiji was once again reminded just how much Lugamon hated being looked down upon. Eiji wondered if it was some sort of wolf-like pride hard-coded into their being. Fine. Whatever. That goes for you too, Doraemon. Or should I be directing that to Kosuke? Which one of you is in charge here anyway? Eiji could tell it was just his own perception and personal hang-up, but he couldn't shake the fact that a codecracker of Kosuke's considerable talents shouldn't be letting a Digimon, one of the tools in his vast codecracking toolbox, run the show. We both are. Doramon and I run the SOC as a team, Kosuke answered. Wow, really? So Tartarus is actually two people, Eiji said, his accusatory tone crumbling into genuine admiration. If it helps you think that way, sure. Doramon, much like your pup's evolved form, controls one of the wall slums districts as well. Ah, is that so? Lugamon said, turning to Doramon. Yes, just like the Wolf of the Ninth District, a district that is of great interest to the SOC in its own right, Kosuke added. It stood to reason that there were more partner Digimon running some of the other districts as well. So, we're looking for Leon and Pulsemon. You're looking for that Black Ogamon. Do you have enough of those DMIA meds to go around? Eiji said, summarising the matter at hand in an attempt to refocus the conversation. We have just one on hand, Doramon said gravely. Given its D4 classification, it wasn't something that Aberdeen Electronics wanted more than one copy of out in the world, especially if it was easy to replicate. 
I'll ask Professor to send you for another dose. It's Leon, he'll probably make one for me. No, so long as we recover the Digimon, that's enough for now. How could Judge's partner Digimon, that's it. Okay, okay, sure. This was meant to be a recovery mission like any other, then. Find the lost Digimon, capture it, and deliver the doc to Professor Usenji. The medicine would be administered at the much better equipped D4 facilities. Alright, so let's lay out the situation, Eiji said, glancing between Kosuke and Dorimon. I very much doubt you, the vaunted leader of the SOC, have been haphazardly looking for lost Digimon. You've got the possible DMI cure on you, but now we need a plan for this little search party. Well, 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 look who's on top of things, Lugamon said, offering Eiji the rare genuine compliment. About that, Kosuke stood up and issued a command to Dorimon. I've got a car pulled out the front. Gather anything you need to take with you and come with me. No need to change. You're fine to come dressed as you are. R right, right now? What, what's the rush? Eiji's voice quavered. It's not safe here. The Digipolice will arrive before too long. Kosuke said upon glancing down at his phone. Are you serious? Eiji yelped. He heard a car pull up at the front of his apartment. Was that the cups now? No, it had to be the car that Kosuke mentioned. Self-driving cars were all over Denrin District these days. He must have called it to the front door with his phone. We'll head to my safe house, Kosuke said, following Dorimon as they walked toward the front door. Oh, a secret base! Eiji had read plenty of manga with safe houses in them. Tiny, unassuming houses tucked away in places few would tread. I'll explain more once we're in the car. This is the SOC's last gambit. We are rebooting Operation Tartarus. Operation... Tartarus? Eiji said, turning to Lugamon. Were we supposed to cheer for that, do you think? Lugamon asked, turning to Eiji with a puzzled look. I've explained the terms and what's at stake. Are you coming or not? Kosuke asked pointedly. Yeah, lead the way. There's no turning back. Be prepared to say goodbye to your old life. No more three-man apartment. No more meagre savings. No more laws. No more... Whatever Eiji thought he knew. Once you dove into the network, it was just the data of your consciousness and the partner Digimon to which it fused. Nothing else mattered. You could break free of the real world and then transcend it. In that case, I have nothing to regret. More importantly, I now know I have nothing to fear, Eiji said resolutely. There's been this hole where my heart should be. All my losses hollowed me out, and I'm done waiting for someone else to fill me back up. It's time to act. No matter how scary it might feel, or how far from home it takes me, I have to do whatever I can, Eiji said. Kosuke nodded approvingly. Embrace the loss and regret, the constraints of your freedom, and hold them close. That's how we Codecrackers survive. That's the only way I know how to live, Eiji said with a smile. Freedom for the network. Freedom for the digital world. I won't pretend I know exactly what you've been through, but you're always welcome to dump your consciousness into my Digicore. I won't even charge you for the privilege, Lugamon said, muscling their way into the conversation. Aw, Lugamon. I'll even come play with you sometime soon, if it'll help with that hole in your heart. Lugamon said. 
Eiji simply reached out and placed his hand on the interface on their head. Lugamon gently leaned into it. I'd love that, pal, Eiji said quietly. You got it. Kosuke looked on approvingly. Emboldened by their newly strengthened bond between Eiji and his partner Digimon. Then our target is the gateway. We are going to code crack our way into the depths of the digital world, he bellowed. Chapter 3, Part 12. Satsuki's call sounded serious. Yulin left Professor Isenji's office and made her way back to the station. She made her way to the Digimon Crime Response Team's office in the Denrin district. She opened the door to chaos. Deputy Squad Leader, you made it! What's the situation, Satsuki? Yulin said as she strode to her chair and sat down. We're picking up large-scale code-cracker activity in the digital world. The war slums, specifically, Satsuki said, grabbing a tablet. How large-scale? Extremely. Tons of traffic. Between 100 and 200 of them. So, not just one or two teams? Correct. Not good. Have they issued a statement? What do they want? Who's leading them? Here, Satsuki said. She handed Yulin the tablet and pressed play on the video. The words Sons of Chaos appeared briefly as the video opened on a group of people singing in a chorus. The SOC, Tardis's group, Yulin said to herself. That helped explain the size of the group. Tartarus had the charisma to pull disparate factions of the code-cracking scene together. The video showed the SOC leader's Digimon launching an all-out attack on the war slum. One Digimon, in particular, caught Yulin's eye as it entered the frame. Doromon! Yulin gasped. We're headed for the depths! The voice was unmistakable. She knew exactly who Tartarus was now. Kosuke. It's a real festival atmosphere, Kosuke shouted. The word shook something loose in the back of Yulin's mind. Ten years from now, you'll be able to hold your head high and say you are here. Unleash your most prized Digimon and follow me if you want to live free of regret. We're headed for... The Gateway. Are they going to try and code-crack their way into the depths? Yulin asked quietly and swallowed hard. The code-crackers in the video made their way toward the Gateway at the centre of the war slum. It's under attack, yeah. The code-crackers responded in force to Tyrus' statement. You've got to be kidding me, Yulin said, biting her lip. The vast majority are bots running routines, but there are plenty of A and S class mind linkers among them too. He said it was like a festival. They seem rather fired up with their... Satsuki trailed off, preferring to mime a couple of fist pumps as though she were an excited attendee. Quit joking around, Yulin screamed, slamming her fist down on the desk. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Satsuki groveled, shrinking from her boss's sudden fury. I'm not upset with you. It's those damn code crackers. Messing with the digital world like this is all some sort of party. It's unconsequential. Precisely, Deputy Squad Leader, Satsuki said hurriedly, desperate to stay in her boss's good graces. Have we dispatched any recon units? Of course. I'll bring them up right now. Satsuki said, turning on the large monitor in the Digipolice command center. The war slum appeared before them, a live video feed taken from the camera-equipped eye of a seal shaman in the recom unit. Seals 1 reporting in. Go ahead. This is HQ. Report your status, Yulin ordered the officer mind-linked to the seal shaman. Copy, HQ. It's a war zone out here. 
A massive horde of code-cracky Digimon is attacking the gateway. The gatekeepers are trying to fend them off, as you can see. And the SOC is present? No confirmed SOC units present, however, if I may. Go ahead. The Digimon residents of the Wall Slum also appear to be on the move, Seelgemon's partner said. Looking closely, Yulin could make out several types of Digimon that Codecrackers hardly ever used. They too were advancing on the gateway en masse. You heard about this, right, Rudamon? Yulin said, tapping the Digimon link on her wrist. Indeed, the Digimon in the Wall Slum are joining the uprising, Rudamon said, joining the conversation in Hololize form. The Digimon of the War Slum sense an opportunity. Seeing as they were expelled from the depths of the digital world for having come into contact with data from the real world, just like the Digimon used by the Digipolice and the Codecrackers. Were they incited by the humans, these Codecrackers? Not universally. There are those such as myself who have simply taken an interest in humans. Some have built social capital within the war slum. The common thread among them is fervent desire to return to the home they once knew. That made Yulin's eyes widen. And to the fact that the SOC's Doramon is widely believed to be the Digimon leader uniting all the districts of the war slum, and it's not hard to see how they were convinced to join, Rudamon said. Yulin immediately opened a comms channel to the entirety of Investigative Unit 11. We have reason to believe this attack on the Warslum Gateway was incited by the SOC, specifically the Codecracker known as Tartarus. They are attempting to Codecrack the Gateway and gain access to the Depths. Should they succeed, they will cause irreparable harm to the digital world. We must do everything in our power to prevent those Codecrackers from interfering with the digital world, she barked. All officers in Unit 11, prepare for immediate dispatch. Equipment Type D. Ooh, the new stuff, Satsuki said with a mischievous grin. All Kagodramon units undergoing maintenance will also be deployed. All A-class and above units, including Satsuki and myself, mindling prior to departure. Copy that, Satsuki replied as she hurried back to her desk to set up her Digimon linker. Time to add some pyrotechnics to their little festival. If anyone sees the SSC leader's Digimon, be it Dorimon or a Digivolt version, do not engage. Contact me first. Don't you dare think you can beat the police, Kosuke, you bozo. Yulin muttered the last part to herself as she reclined in her chair, activated her Digimon linker, and sent her consciousness into Rudamon's Digicore. The mountain that loomed over the centre of the war slum was every inch the war zone Seelgemon partner officially officer described. A horde of cyborg Digimon flooded the caldera where the gateway sat. Turned loose by the code crackers had turned loose in an all-out assault on the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers were horrendously underspecked compared to the Royal Knights, but the system deemed them good enough to guard the gateway, which was the only thing they were asked to protect. Absolutely magnificent, Marvin said with a grin. His hololized form looked up at the network to see, reddened by the continuous blasts below. Marvin scanned the sea of Codecracker Digimon below, picking up on the prevalence of cyborg-type Digimon. Espimon appeared particularly popular. Thousands of Digimon swarmed the caldera, and the amateur Codecrackers in particular were primed to take the festival comments to heart and banter with one another. Unable to mindlink and not interested in heavy data analysis, Marvin figured they had no clue as to the significance of what was happening at the gateway. They just knew they wanted to join the party.
Wall slum Digimon mobilization is higher than anticipated, Doramon muttered. And it's all thanks to Eiji's Wolf of the Ninth District and the Digimon living there, Kosuke said, looking out over the battlefield. The Wall slum offered tons of vantage points in the form of its many rotting, shabby buildings, all considered nearly as dangerous as the area around the gateway itself. And so they continued to slowly fall apart. No one lived in them, let alone wanted to live on rocky terrain as hard to navigate as the gateway caldera itself. Tartarus and Doramon would be safe here, despite being so close to the gatekeepers. Seeing as they were plenty distracted by the hordes of co-crackers and their Digimon. Can you hear me, Eiji, Lugamon? Kosei asked over chat. A beat. Then a voice responded. Tartarus? The results are superb, Eiji. You've done a masterful job. Where are you now? Still on the subway. How much longer do we have, Lugamon? We're almost at the last stop. We'll take off running from there. It had been a fair amount of work, but Eiji and Lugamon mobilised the entirety of the 9th district. Move as fast as you can. We have to keep the pressure. Fair warning that the Digimon of the 9th district will quit at the drop of a hat if they feel like it, Lugamon chimed in. That's entirely reasonable, seeing as they're just caught up in the swell of the movement of the other districts. We can't control every last one of them, but there ought to be enough who want to return to the digital world badly enough to rush the gateway. How do we do, Doramon? Eiji asked excitedly. This will have to do, Doramon said cryptically. Say what? This is the Wall Slum's revolution, a moment of violent transformation. Oh, okay. Anyway, we'll just be a little bit longer. Chat's getting a bit tough to make out, Eiji said, cutting out just as he finished his sentence. Leave your admin chat channel open. I'll be in touch, Kosuke said, ending their direct call. Shit, they're here! A voice screamed over the SOC admin chat. Who? Kosuke asked. More gatekeepers, or could it be? The Digipolice! came the reply as the long shadows of a Cargodramon formation stretched over the war slum. The Cargodramon squadron hung in the air, searching for the right angle of approach. Begin descent! Yulin barked over a comms to Satsuki, who was aboard the unit behind her. Roger that, but we risk getting tagged in the crossfire if we get too low. Cargodramon armour can take a couple strays. Our top priority is arresting the SOC-affiliated co-crackers. Whatever Yulin thought about Digimon and the digital world, she was part of the police force now. There was only one way for this to end. She had to prevent these extremist co-crackers from interfering with the digital world, and bring the full extent of their crimes to light. It's just about time, Doramon said, eyes fixed on the battle raging at the gateway. Thank you for everything. Hmm? This is it, Doramon. Let's take this ending back to the beginning. Kosuke gently stroked the interface on Doramon's head, then looked up at the encroaching Kagodramon formation with disgust. They're looking for something, Doramon said, observing the Kagodramon's behaviour. Us. Then I shall digivolve. Do. We have to hit him with all we've got. Otherwise, we'll never see our partners again. And here they come, right on cue, to fall into our trap. Yulin and Rudamon. I'll see you soon, sire. I'll find that black Ogamon. And that was it for Chapter 3 of Digimon Seekers. 
Again, I was recording that weekly as each segment was released and I was popping them up on Patreon for Patreon supporters pledging $10 or more a month. So if you want to make sure that you're up to date for the release of Chapter 4, which is the next chapter, I recommend checking that out if you don't want to wait for the whole complete chapter to be released for the full version. But of course, if you just want the full version once it comes out, you can continue doing what you are doing. But if you are supporting on Patreon already, thank you so much for doing so. So that was presumably the second last chapter with chapter four, uh, I would assume being the last chapter. Uh, my reason for that being that the original announcement said that it would last about a year and considering we're getting a chapter basically every four months at this point that puts us in four months time at the anniversary of Digimon Seekers starting. So I would assume that the chapter four is the end of Digimon Seekers which means we're almost at the end which is kind of sad. I've been really enjoying it but this isn't really a, a review discussion podcast, this is just an audiobook, so if you want my views and opinions on Seekers so far, check them out over on the Lost in Translation 1 YouTube channel. As of recording this, I haven't done my Chapter 3 review yet, but uh, uh, this is releasing publicly on Wednesday, and I'll have my Chapter 3 review on Friday, I believe, if everything goes to plan. So stay tuned for that. But overall, thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm just going to reiterate it. I'm not a professional voice actor or actor or audiobook reader or anybody special. I'm just kind of doing this because I'm. it's kind of fun and a lot of people were recommending it to me to do it and uh, suggesting it. So that's why I'm, I'm doing it. But I'm not. Don't expect uh, any extreme level of quality with the voices. They probably changed as uh, each chapter. I tried to keep some consistency with the voices. I, at the very least, they are different from one another-ish. So thank you for putting up with that, I guess. But uh, overall, thanks for listening. The link dump links in the description. If there is one, I can't remember if I have one for this. I guess I'll. That's future me's problem. You can contact us and stay updated. You can leave us a comment on this episode on YouTube. To join on the conversation for a full list of ways to find the podcast across the internet, such as YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, and Twitter. Head over to the link tree, which is linktr.e/lostintranslationmon. If you enjoy the podcast or videos or any of my posts online, you can show your support by signing up on Patreon and get some cool rewards and help us hit some milestones. And thank you to our current supporters on Patreon, Stephen Reeves, who is Wild 64 on Archive Our Own, Kaidawashi Chisai, who can follow on Twitter at Chisai236, Neobu, who says you should follow Chisai on Twitter at Chisai236, Lizbeth, who is Lechman on Tumblr, Nicholas Emery from Gone All Hunting, a Hunter Hunter Rewatch podcast, Magnus, Lucas, Jason105, Patrick, Jason, Shelby, Digital Hazard, who's on Twitch at the Digital Hazard, Tropiamon, Vimon, Tamer, Kasai, Flavin, Big Bad, Beetleborg, and Bent Archer. You can also make a one donation on PayPal, which can be found linked in the description. It's paypal.me slash You can also donate to me on my coffee account, ko-fi.com slash Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope that uh, y'all are enjoying it. Again, I do recommend if you are just listening to this as your way of uh, consuming Digimon Seekers, I still recommend going to digimon.net and reading Digimon Seekers there, or just like clicking on all the links, looking at the pretty pictures, because there's art for each chapter, or each segment rather. 
watch the uh, the live action trailer they have for each chapter. Just kind of get those clicks on, just because you know we want Bandai to know that this is something that people like, that people are actively consuming, that it's getting some level of traffic. So make sure you still head over to Digimon.net forward slash Digimon Seekers and uh, check out the actual official release if this is your main way of uh, consuming Seekers. So let me know your thoughts if you're, if you're listening slash watching this on YouTube. Comments uh, below in the comment section. Like this video. Subscribe if you haven't already. And of course, I'll see you in the next one. Bye!